I was photographing an underground mine and we worded up the bogger operator and the trucks where I were, where I was standing and told them not to come into that space. So I set up the tripod and focused on, you know, the bogger and the truck loading or what it was. And next thing I found myself being slammed into the um, sidewall, this underground mine. And then Vince ended up there as well. And what happened was the bogger operator had forgotten and mm. his bogger bucket pulled up right where my head had been. So it could have been a problem. <laughs> That's why you got to have your head on a swivel and be sort of switched on all the time. I was nearly killed in an artisanal mine in Pakistan as well when these people didn't warn of the blast properly. Well, we didn't even know the blast was going on. This bit of fly rock went past my head. About a metre in front of my head at 200 k's an hour would have killed me for sure. I was the one leading them. I was in front and there's a couple others behind me and uh, they still talk about that to this day. Mm. And you, you, you keep doing it. <laughs> Welcome to the Beers with a Miner podcast. My name is Mad Mumsy and I've been driving the huge dump trucks in Australian open cup mines for over 10 years now. I wish I had a dollar for everyone who said to me, how does a little thing like you drive those big trucks? Oh, you must be rich. How do I get a job doing that? My mining friends are asked these questions all the time too. This is what started the Mad Mumsy journey to share stories and tips from living a mining lifestyle and to let others know what it's really like. Tune in each episode as I sit down for a relaxed chat, usually over a few beers, with a fellow miner. Women and blokes with various experience, roles and opinions share their lessons and stories with you. Not everyone is cut out to be a miner, but why not? What does it take to thrive and survive in this industry? Now, let's dig in. Get it? Dig. Mining. I oh, crack me up. Hello, I am Mad Mumsy, also known as Leanne, <laughs> and welcome to another Happy Hour episode of the Beers with a Miner podcast. Today I am chatting with internationally recognised mining photographer Hugh Brown, who has sold over 50,000 books, is based in the Pilbara in WA, Western Australia, for our overseas listeners, and has travelled the world taking photos of mines, machines and the people who are part of our global mining family. Hugh is also here to make a difference. Listen in as we talk about Hugh's many adventures and stories from the Pilbara, the goldfields, Africa, Pakistan, and so many more. He's been underground in the world's most dangerous mining mountain, Serra Rico, in Bolivia. He's been inside volcanoes and done photo shoots with not just one helicopter, but three over huge open cut mines. And, of course, there are also crocodile stories from right here in Oz, Australia. Hugh shares with us fond memories of some of the bloody legends that he's met in the Pilbara over the years and also about the world's poorest miners who do not have a voice. Not yet, anyway. Watch out for Hugh's Garimpero project and keep the hashtag Give These Miners a Voice in mind. You will be seeing it everywhere real soon. It's new and it's his passion and you'll hear that as he shares all of his wonderful adventures with us because he's an adventurer and a survivalist and wait to hear what his special place is when life turns to shit. I'll give you a hint. It's the total opposite of mine. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was dumbfounded. 
I'll keep this intro short so you can dig right in because we're going long. Take my word for it, this convo is well worth a listen and that's the beauty of podcasts. You can pick up again right where you left off. I'm sure you will enjoy this episode, this happy hour, this happy hmm, two and a bit hour episode as much as we did. Hugh has become a friend and I really admire all that he is doing in the world, all that he has already done. And I know by the end of this, you will think the same. Now let's dig in. Get it? I won't spoil it because we say that later, but you know what I'm going to say. Let's dig in. Get it? Dig mining. <laughs> I crack me up. Oh, and I will say... It comes out in the podcast, but it'd be good for you to know now. I'll share the show notes link, which is madmumsy.com forward slash beers 83, the number 83. And you can, on most podcast apps these days, you can be listening and also looking at the show notes at the same time in the straight in the app. So I'll share all the links where you can check out his photos as we're talking because they're freaking amazing some of the photos of trucks with all the stars around them and oh mines around the world and all of these um poor miners who don't have a voice it's just so powerful and that's why when he reached out to me on linkedin as you'll hear i i said yeah Let's chat. How does Saturday suit? (laughs) And it was like Thursday. So this has been really quick. And the episode's long. So shut up, Mad Mumsy. Let us listen to Hugh Brown, mining photographer, an amazing human being. And it is with great honor that I share this chat with you. And if you enjoy it, please. Share with your mates, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. (laughs) Okay, cheers. Shut up, Mad Mumsy. It's time to go. (laughs) Hello, Hugh, and welcome to the Biz with a Minor podcast. By the time this goes live, I've shared how freaking awesome you are, and I need to say to you, thank you so much for reaching out to me on LinkedIn, um, which my sister has been trying to get me on for years and I'm really starting to see now why, because there's amazing people on there. And when I got that message from you that, you know, you wanted to um, connect and catch up and see what you're doing and see what I'm doing, I'm like, you know what, let's do a bloody podcast and let's do it in two days <laughs> talk about <laughs> yeah. yeah talk about the spare of the moment so welcome to the podcast Hugh thank you very much Mumsy. thank you very much um I will let my listeners know that we have just been saving the world for about an hour before we <laughs> actually started this so I feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit more Hugh and um that's what happens when I interview someone it's everyone there's no one even like even the mayor, when I had him on the podcast, my kids call him my mate, the mayor. <laughs> I don't know if he remembers <laughs> me or anything, but uh, just sitting down one-on-one with someone and hearing their story, I feel like uh, 
I've ended up mates for life. So thank you. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Cheers. Now, let's actually get started, right? So as as this podcast is called the Beers with a Minor podcast, I like to start these happy hour episodes with my guests sharing their favourite beverage and also their favourite time to enjoy it. Could be beer, wine, spirit, or perhaps even a cup of tea. What is yours, Hugh? Well, look, it depends on who you talk to over the years, but mango smoothies have sort of been very high in the um, pecking order um, through the years. But I think my favourite at the moment is an Ord River rum, which is produced where I am here in Kununurra. And, um, yeah, I carry a bottle around with me when I'm travelling, so um, that's my little secret. Uh, oh, so Ord River, where's that? That's in WA? Yeah, yeah, it's in the far north of WA in the Kimberley region in a place called Kununurra, which... Kununurra is the second northernmost town in Western Australia, and it's only surpassed by Wyndham, which is about 100 k's up the road. So it's a, it's a really, really spectacular part of the world, um, one of the most spectacular places in the world, and I'm really privileged to be up here. So, yeah. Oh, wow. And but they make Ord, they make Ord River rum um, here in the, in the Ord Valley. So, yeah, very impressive. And how do you have it? Do you have it on ice? Do you have it you know coke <laughs> or um water um, i like or? i like having it um with dry ginger ale oh, so yeah. um you know bundaberg dry ginger or whatever it's called so um ginger beer i should say so but i'll also drink it nate as well so um yeah it um takes the edge off you when you've had a big day sometimes and is that your favorite time to have it after a big day um, yes. or where? where? C- certainly not in the mornings, although I will say that... Um, <laughs> oh, what's um, wrong back... with you? Get off my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I remember back in about, it would have been 16 years ago, a, a friend of mine um, kicked the bucket, so to speak, and um, wa- oh, Wacker was an old gold prospector, very, very well known through the Pilbara and also the gold fields back in the day, and spent his life working basically as an underground miner with his own show and um yeah he loved to drink so pretty much on the day of his funeral everyone was blotto by 8 a.m and that was probably the record i think so far as i'm concerned (laughs) oh wow he sounds like a bloody legend and i'm sure there's lots of people who are listening who know of him at least the legend of him or perhaps they've uh, had a rum or two with him as well I think a bit of both. He used to have this saying that you could always tell the success of a mine by the size of its bottle heap, and he then said, I always had a bloody big bottle heap, regardless of whether the mine was successful or not. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he was a real character. Oh, that's good. Thank, well, thanks for sharing that with us. My favourite beverage is a mid-strength beer, Carlton Mid, red can. We had a bit of a drought. I haven't shared this yet on the podcast. Couldn't get any red beer up here. Like it's in, I call it red beer, but um, as opposed to Forex Gold, which I used to drink, but I've now gone change sides. But I I will drink um, Forex Gold if there's no Carlton Mid around. And there wasn't any anywhere in town. And and I remember they, I don't know what what was going on. There was was a bit of a supply issue, which let's face it, there's been supply issues for a lot of things. Um, but I also have changed recently. You will notice I am drinking beer in a wine glass. Wow, that's very right? impressive. Aren't I, Gord? I'm posh now. 
<laughs> here we sort of have a bit of a sort of a hierarchy system, I think, here in Western Australia because we've got um, the bush chook, which seems to be drunk uh, profusely by the locals, but also, yeah, other people other than the locals as well. So, yeah, and it's the, the true locals up here drink it. Um, um, Kimberley Coal, which is basically with it outside the fridge. So um, oh, no. I've oh. never gone there and oh, horrible, horrible stuff. That's that's too hot up there, isn't it? Mm, well, I absolutely. Would, and I've shared this on the podcast because I did like my red wine, which I'm off red wine at the moment. Uh, you know, it's like a special treat now. And that's why I have my beer in a wine glass at night because I, I feel like I'm still having a wine. It's supposed to be water as well sometimes. Just have a water, Mad Mumsy. You don't, you know, like, yeah, no, oh, haven't, I didn't do it again, did I? Um, so, but I would put ice in my red wine, which horrifies true red wine drinkers. But, you know, when they say room temperature, yeah, room temperature when you live in England <laughs> is different when you live in central Queensland. And like you say, what did you call it? Bush temperature? Bush chook, um, emu export. Uh, look, I'll never forget a few years ago, another guy, because I, I spent a bit of time with these old timers around the place. And there was a guy called Old Helmet who literally lived in the bed of the Fitzroy River near Derby for about 40 years. And when the river flooded every year, um, he'd build his house in the middle of the river so that when the river flooded and, and flowed through the bottom of his house, he could go upstairs into the top of his house. And I, I remember going out there, I think it was 2006 again, and um, um, I'd sort of promised him that when I came back, because I'd taken his photo, and I, I don't like just taking people's photos. I like to get to know them a little bit and do all of that. And I said, look, when I come back, what do you drink? And he said, bush chook. So I brought him back a carton of bush chook. And that night was a really uncomfortable night. It was November. It was sort of the build-up. And um, I did a bit of fishing on the Fitzroy River. And about 9am, I was slaughtered from mosquitoes and everything else and watching these um, Kimberley pioneers look as though they wanted to get killed by crocodiles. And um, <laughs> yeah, I went over to see Old Helmet and I took this carton with him. And I had cold beers in the fridge. And I said, look, I, he said, have a beer with me. I said, yeah, no, no worries. I said, I've got cold ones in the fridge. And he said, no, no, I prefer them warm. It was like nine o'clock in the morning and um, I just couldn't touch the stuff. I, I literally pulled the cold stuff out and, and, and stuck with that while he drank it warm. So, yeah. Wow. Well, each to their own. And, and it's amazing the stories that I hear by having this question at the start of the podcast. Sometimes I must say I've forgotten and end up doing it at the end because we launch straight into the <laughs> in, the in, in the, I'm like, shit, I didn't ask my question. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, we have to start again. No, we can do it at the end. So, um, all right, how – I don't want to – I've got written down, how did you get into mining photography? But how did you get into mining in the first place? Or what were you doing before that? There you go. Let's start there. Um, how did I get into mining? Um, it's funny, my parents would have liked me to have been a geologist, um, you know, back in the day. And um, it's not something that ever really appealed to me. And um, I think when I was coming out of uni, I was in the second second year at uni and coming up to sort of the Christmas vacation. And I ended up getting a job with BHP and head office in, in Melbourne. So that became my first, you know, even though it was an internship, it was basically my first, my first job. And then when I, when I left uni, I, um, that's because I studied business and I, was stu I started to study law at that stage. And um, the firm that I went to work with, um, I ended up mainly doing mining 
um, mining, mining consulting. And we were working with some of the biggest um, gold producers uh, in Australia at that time. And, and um, the reason, I, if I'm honest, the reason I got onto the mining companies was, <laughs> I don't think I've ever told anyone this or told them publicly, was that I worked out if you did, we had to bill our time out every six minutes. So I worked out that if you got on, got on the big jobs, then they weren't so concerned about fees and how much they paid as a sort of mum and, not mum and dad, but, you know, the, the, the wealthy individuals that um, we were doing work for as well. So that was how I gravitated. I sort of worked at the system and basically gamed it and then went across and um, got on all the big jobs doing the, you know, um, consulting to them. So, and then from there I went into management consulting, which is basically corporate strategy, and we were working with oil and gas and, again, in the mining industry to some extent. Um, and then... I, I did a trip over to, um, I did a trip over, we had a client in Perth at that stage and we just finished a pretty busy job and so we had to go and deliver the presentation to the client. So got over to the client and I decided that I'd take some leave after the meeting and then I'd hitchhike up the Western Australian coast to Broome. So... How, yep. Sorry, I've got my hand up. <laughs> for those of for those of you listening, I've got my hand up rather than go. Hang on a minute. Um, how old were you when you decided to hitchhike up the coast of WA? I was twenty eight. Twenty eight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting as well because where I where I ended up picking up the you know starting that journey turned out to be five or seven kilometres away from where I ended up living some years later, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. So anyway, I managed to get a ride, I think, with a furniture removalist, and we went to Wongan Hills and we picked up a, a house. And, uh, you know, we basically packed up a house and then took it through to Geraldton. So spent a day helping them, you know, shift furniture and pick up furniture. And I got to Geraldton, he, wanted to, he said, oh, do you want to come and do another gig with us? And I said, no, look, I've, I've got, you know, time is a bit of a constraint, so... I think I then got to the Calbarry turn off and then I met this German doctor and I think um, thereafter, when we left Calbarry a few days later, we were travelling at about 160, 170 kilometres an hour, literally, <laughs> oh. in this little hatchback up, <laughs> the, um, up the northwest. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was up the northwest coastal highway and edge of your seat stuff. And um, So I made it to Broome and then got to the Bungles and um, that's Pernalulu, the Bungle Bungles, whatever you want to call it. And... I thought, I want to see the, the bungles because I heard so much about them. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll, if I can't get a ride in there, I'll just walk in there. And it's like 53 k's. And um, it was, you know, pretty dry old track. And so I, th- I waited for a bit and ended up getting a lift in. And um, I, when I sort of got back to Broome, I thought, this place is all right. And I thought, I'm not really fulfilled in my job. Uh, and there's a, there was a range of reasons for that. But mainly I'd sort of plateaued in terms of I think what I wanted out of the work mm. and I thought well I'm going to make a decision I'm going to move to move up to the Kimberley I'll go back to Melbourne then I'll come back get a job and then I'll move to the Kimberley and I'm and the one thing that stood stood out at me at that stage was that um sometimes you can get back to your old life and it can be comfortable and I did get back and it started to feel comfortable again but I'd made that decision. I said, I'm going to stick with that decision. And usually when I've made those decisions, they've proven to be right. And so I got up to the Kimberley. Um, was still involved in the mining industry, even, after, even during that time in the Kimberley to varying extents. And then uh, 
yeah, and that sort of, and then about uh, 2004, I think it was, I made the decision to um, give the photographer, give what I was doing away, and become a photographer. And I, that was a bit of a tortuous decision as well because um, I'd never, in my wildest expectations, thoughts, it wasn't even a dream because it just never occurred to me that I'd ever want to be a photographer. And yeah. over a space of about two years, I decided, okay, well, I'm going to give this photography thing a go. And part of my concern being that. Um, Part of the concern being that everything I'd done seriously in my life, I'd ended up hating it. So, mm. yeah, that's how it sort of that's how it sort of transpired. So, do you think the sorry, um, living up, being up there in that amazing scenery, just inspired the photography bug? Oh, absolutely. What happened was. Um, when I got up to the Kimberley, my job was literally taking me all through the Kimberley and I was dealing with Aboriginal communities and the whole box and dice. So I got a really quick and a really broad and a really deep overview of the Kimberley very, very quickly. And mm. um, I think what sort of came out of that was um, I had this awful feeling that I'd get taken back to my old life in, in Melbourne and I thought, so I thought that I'd only be up there for a short time, so I may as well make the most. So literally every weekend I'd jump in the car or sometimes a helicopter and I'd just go and see crazy remote places. And, you know, sometimes I'd drive up to two and a half thousand kilometres in a weekend oh. um, just just to see new places. And the camera came along and, and um, so it went from there. Mm. Wow. And what did your parents think about all that? So they were in Melbourne, is that right? You were all in yeah, Melbourne. Yeah, back in Bloody Vic. Back did in you, Victoria. Did you follow AFL? Yep, who, still do. Who do you go for? The most successful team in the last 50 years, Hawthorne. Oh, fucking no, that's all right. At least it's not Collingwood. <laughs> <laughs> Collingwood yeah, supporters true. slip in with the normal people. <laughs> but my, my some, listeners think, know that. <laughs> I think there's a team worse than Collingwood these days. I think it's the Dockers. I don't know why, but uh, the Fremantle Dockers just seem to... Inspire mediocrity. Well, I can give you one more, Port Adelaide, because I'm from South Australia originally. So, okay. yes, I'm, I, I have two teams. I won't dwell mm-hmm. because my listeners have heard this story before, but I have the Brisbane Lions because I've lived in Queensland for half my life and the Adelaide Crows because oh, I, lived, th- I yeah. lived there and I just used to go to the footy when the Crows came to play Brisbane when we were on the Sunshine Coast. But sometimes it was every two years. Yes. And then the Brisbane Lions, my friend wanted to go and then I saw them um, training and stretching on the beach at, out front of the Malulabar Surf Club and I'm like, hey, they're all right. <laughs> Any footballers would look good doing that. And um, so I started going down to the footy with her and it just happened to be around the time that we won those three grand finals, got in the next one and lost to Port. Mm, which sucked, 2004. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I had to ask. Being from Vic, for sure. So your parents, sorry, interrupting again. <laughs> yeah, no, they, so they thought, you know, uh, look, I, actually my, my family I've not been close to, but people that were like a family to me um, thought I was crazy, you know, giving up a, a good job and a good career potentially and to go and do something that was completely completely unknown and um um but it was the best decision that i ever made and um i'm still really grateful that i made that decision back then you know i would never have 
you know, would never in the wildest dreams have imagined that it'd take me where it's taken me. So let's talk about that. Where has your photography taken you? You are known as, hang on, I had to write it down. I've got to find the, the official term, internationally recognised mining photographer <laughs> with 50,000 plus books sold and here to make a difference. I love the here to make a difference. That, that, that's, that's really good. So we'll get to that a bit later on, how your photography is, makes a difference. But So my biggest question around your photography is how you ended up getting to be able to take photos in like in the mining industry how did that unfold yeah so that's a that's an interesting story i mean um, when i made the decision to leave what i was doing in the kimberley um <coughs> mining became a mining was a natural fit because i had some knowledge of the industry um and so I reached out to the industry and um, said, look, do you need any photos taken for your annual reports and for whatever else? And um, my first client, my first, you know, first major client when I struck out like that was um, a company called Atlas Iron. And, and the managing director at that stage was a guy called Dave Flanagan, who's, who's a friend to this day. And... Um, He's been a client on and off over a period of about 17, 18 years now. Uh, we said to each other, well, they were starting out. They only had four employees. And um, I said, look, I'll do you a deal. Um, and then, like, that company eventually grew to become a $3 billion company. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the work that I did initially, they really liked. And, and then as they grew, you know, I did their work for them and um, ended up doing a book for them across the journey. And um, so that was it. I, I had a knowledge of the mining industry and, and um, that seemed like, just sort of seemed like a natural foray more than anything else. And did that then um, uh, encourage you, isn't the right word, but then you had a foot in the door. So did you start working with other because you've been overseas and everything, um, so how did you know? How does that happen? Or was that was that through them? No, it wasn't just through them. I had a bit of a system worked out at that stage as well. Because at the time, I was I was doing a book on. I decided mainly, I think it was to to strike out and do a book on the Pilbara region. Mm. And so this why was, not? Like you know, it's amazing, isn't it? It's an amazing mm. region, but what I wanted this book to do was I wanted to, I've got a very conceptual brain and I wanted this book to provide coverage of the whole Pilbara region. But the problem with that is that the Pilbara region is about 500,000 or more square kilometres. <laughs> so some of it's very remote and I wanted to capture it all. And so the question was, how did I, how was I going to fund that? And so um, what transpired out of that was that, uh, I thought, well, maybe what I can do is I can go and photograph an area and then I can sell some of those photos to mining companies and maybe see if they want any commission work done because mining companies were the big operators in those areas. And then when I've done that, sold some photos, done some work for them, that money can then fund the next stage of shooting that area of 500,000 square kilometres. Mm. And, and Atlas through Dave and 
um, came up in the context, I think, Marble Bar at Port Hedland, because they had tenements north of Marble Bar at a place called Farrowell, um, and they also had tenements at um, just north of Hedland. So, yeah, so that, that I did work for him, and then the money that that generated, I used to go and see other other companies, and it just sort of went from there. And um, so that was how how and that flowed right around the Pilbara region. So as I was doing more, I went and saw a company called Austril. They've been a client to, you know, for 15, 16 years, mm-hmm. um, did a book for them. And then um, I think back in 2006, um, Austril rang me up and said, do you want to go to Africa? And I nearly didn't go because um, Africa had never been a highlighter on the agenda for me to go and see. And um, I said to a mate who I studied law with, I said, do you want to go and do it? He said, yeah, that'd be good. I said, let me think about it. I said, no, nah, bugger it, I'll do it. So I went over and did the first trip there and never looked back and Africa had changed my life. Oh. How? In what, like in what uh, way? How did it deeply change your life? Well, was it deeply at your core it changed your life or just changed your life because you were in Africa? <laughs> um, did it, I, I don't know how to answer that other than to say that um, I've spent substantial time in Africa all over the continent. I've worked in about 16 countries there. Um, Now, who would have thought that from that one initial two-week trip that I did to Africa back in back in 2006? And it was it was, you know, through that first trip that I did and then the trips that followed and the things that I saw that basically um, drove interest in in doing that book that, you know, you're aware of the Garen Perros project. So um, yeah, like that's that's how it changed my life, and and the project that I'm working on in that context is it feels like my life's purpose, if that makes sense. Mm, so all of that led to the <laughs> Gar- Now I wrote it down. Don't laugh at me. Gar- you, and you just said it, so that's a bit of a giveaway. Garam, I was thinking Garam Piros, Pier. Not far off. Piros. Very close. Ga- Garam Peros. Garen Peros. So I'll spell it for my listeners it's, and so you can Google it. <laughs> well, the links will be in the show notes, of course, as they always are. And while we're at it, the show notes can be found at madmumsy.com forward slash beers 83, the number 83 for this uh, episode. Um, G-A-R-I-M-P-E-I-R-O-S project. So why is it called that? Um, the, the title changed a bit. The title's changed a couple of times through the process, but it started out as being The Cruelest Earth, but I never was really comfortable with that. So um, Ganaperos is Portuguese for prospector. Oh, right. um, and it's often associated with illegal, um, illegal miners, particularly in Brazil. Um, and I just like the title. I know I've broken every rule in the book by using a name that's hard for people to remember and all of that. I don't really care. Like, it just seems really fitting for, for the people that I work with and the people that I photograph around the world. So I'm, I'd rather people learn the, to use the name than for me to sort of give them something that's easy to remember, yeah, if that makes sense. absolutely. It certainly does. And I'm, uh, I'm thinking that by you going over to Africa... And then you just saw so many things that you, I guess you might have been half expecting, but it just wouldn't have touched the, touched the sides of what it was actually like to see 
how these people are um, affected and what they have to do, these illegal miners and everything. Can can you like tell us tell us about that? Some of the pictures are just so oh, they're just so powerful. <laughs> like I can't even work, I can't put it into words, but I'm sure you can. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at that time, um, the guy called Andrew Broad, who was Ausdrill's 2IC, um, said to me before I went over there, he said, it's gonna, he said, it's going to be confronting and you're going to see things that you're going to find really difficult. And I sort of came away. I didn't say anything at the time, but I came away and I thought, I don't reckon I'm going to see much I haven't already seen. Because I'd spent a lot of time around, you know, Aboriginal communities in Northern Australia and seen the poverty in some of those places. And so... Um, and that proved to be pretty right. I got over to, to Ghana. I, there wasn't anything that I think that I found I couldn't deal with or, you know, really confronting that it would just couldn't handle it. Um, but, yeah, like it, these miners were, were mining beside the roadside. Initially, when I saw them between, I think, uh, near a place called Ayan Fury in, in, in Ghana, in the southwest of Ghana, and... Um, yeah, I went back in 2010 and um, became more interested in about later, like 2008, and then became more interested. 2010 went back and then became more interested. And I decided late 2010 that I wanted to do a book on them. And I had no, you know, I had no idea what my objectives with the book were, other than I had a rough sort of concept of coverage and all of that. And I had no idea how I was going to finance it. I knew it was going to be expensive. I knew the project was going to be difficult. I had no idea who I was going to sell it to, uh, if anyone would be interested to in it. And, and what became really interesting after that was that um, this book, um, you know, the work on this book happened to coincide with a major shift in legislative, in the legislative regime globally around, you know, things like responsible sourcing, ethical sourcing, sustainable sourcing, Mm. all of that and so um, you know I wish I could claim credit for having been ahead of my time but at the end of the day I just the project felt important it felt deeply important I couldn't tell you why other than that it was fascinating what I was seeing and, and then that happened to coincide with sort of you know this emergence of responsible sourcing and the like over the remaining over the last 12 years and that's across all industries isn't it the clothing, yeah, clothing like, industry, especially, is what comes to mind. Food sources, um, but especially, yeah, clothing, and um, it's 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 just just I don't like that word, but it, you know, treating people in a way, and and if we're in in the right way, and um, if we are supporting, you know, sweatshops and stuff like that buying all the cheap clothes and that, you know, they're trying to stamp that out. So to really look for ethically, is sustainable the word that goes with that? No? Ethically something? I don't know. I don't have the words for this part of what I'm trying to I'm say. Gonna, I'm going to flip it all on its head. Uh, Please maybe. do. Um, <laughs> Save me. Yeah. <laughs> you know where I'm um, coming from though, right? Like we have... I do. I, Consumer um, choice can make change as well. Yeah, it can. The problem is that it's, if I'm honest, it's a bloody circus, the whole show. Mm. So we've got sustainable sourcing, we've got responsible sourcing, we've got ethical sourcing. And the problem is it's being used by these global 
brands and the like to boost their own profits without making any change on the ground. And if I, if I told you that 95% of the spend or the money that was going into these um, areas of responsible sourcing, ethical sourcing and sustainable sourcing went to consult, white consultants and auditors and risk managers and all of that, you'd probably fall off your chair. Um, but the problem is, is that, you know, these, one of the big challenges, I suppose, is that the people I work with are some of the poorest people in the world, literally, and they're doing some of the most dangerous work in the world. But the flip side of it all is that these miners, um, they make the, most of them make the active choice to do this work. And the reality is that even though their wages are horrendously low compared to what we earn, they're still earning three times as much as what their countrymen are earning and what they can earn in the fields and the farms. And the best, the best analogy I can give you is that, um, is that here in Australia, we have all these people do jobs that they hate. It might be in the mining industry, it might be working as a labourer, it might be cleaning, it might be an office worker doing an 80-hour week. And they all hate the work that they're doing, but they choose to do that work because they're earning more money than what they would otherwise earn. And what they're doing is they're sacrificing the life they could be living now for the prospect of better lives for themselves and their families because they want a better house or a better car or they want to put the kids through a better school and give them a better you know, head start in life. And those people here doing FIFO or whatever else um, are exactly the same as the miners in these countries that I photographed, those people are also sacrificing the lives that they could be living now because they're, you know, they're doing dangerous jobs quite often or they're working long hours and away from home so that they can make better lives for themselves and their families, if that makes sense. Mm, it does, yet the conditions compared to what the miners in Africa's conditions um, when they're at work, are uh, worlds apart, aren't they? Like safety-wise and and just on every level, on every level, you know. But but here's the here's here's the rub on all of that. Those the the large-scale mining industry, you know, coal, iron ore, gold, whatever else, um, they employ about seven million people worldwide. Um, the people that I work with. Um, that field employs directly about 40 million people worldwide. So um, you've got in the large-scale industry that 7 million people accounts for about over 90% of global minerals output, whereas you've got um, the people that I photograph, they, they count for less than 10%, mm. but employs it employs over 40 million. And if you include the, the people indirectly reliant on that, it's another 240 million. So over 10% of the, the, the third world population um, actually depends on this industry. Now, if you pull that industry away and you say, um, right, these people can't do this anymore, where do they go? How do they feed their families? How do they put their kids through school? How do the kids and the family even eat? And the problem we have in the developed world is we've got all these people telling, people, telling them they shouldn't be able to do this work because it's unsafe or this or that or ever else. But no one's actually coming up with solutions most of the time as to how to help transition. If you want to take them away from that and put them somewhere else, no one's actually coming up with alternatives for these people to go to, if that makes sense. And that's where I come in and I'm saying we, ne we need to do better. I'm, I'm happy for these people all to lose their jobs 
But if we're going to take their jobs away from them, we've got to give them other jobs to go to. Mm. And uh, we <laughs> touched on the C word, climate change, in our mm. uh, pre-chat there. And that's a lot of people that if they stop mining because of climate change that are going to be affected in third... I didn't even think of that. In third world countries that are working um, in the mining industry as well. How could I not have even thought of them actually working in there? I, I was thinking more about us supplying them. Obviously, <laughs> my little mining bubble is Australia, uh, mostly. But... Oh, I wrote down here something. Um, my heart is just going into so many different places. When you take the photos of them over there, do you try to get to know their story as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a big part of it. Mm. So when I go to these places, I'm not there for for one, two or even three days. I'm there for many weeks. Yeah. Uh, quite often I stay in their camps um, I eat their food, I eat with them, I get to know them so that, you know, they get to, to trust me and allow me into the world that they work in. And, um, yeah, I, I feel that I understand the, the things that drive these people and that motivate them really, really well. Um, and I think it would be, I think it would be a miss, more than a miss. I think it would be arrogant. I think it would be um, exploitative if I just went in to get the photos and not actually form relationships and build friendships with these people and that's why that's why to be honest I think I'm I'm there and I'm saying well it's not okay you know the problem is even those 40 million of them um, they're fragmented all of that they're some of the world's poorest people it's easy for for the big guys to kick them around and the big guys can be you know however you define that um, and there's no one or barely anyone out there that are putting forward the interests of the miners and saying, well, what are their needs? What do they want? It's in this space at the moment, we're coming in from the richest countries in the world and telling them you should be doing this and you should be doing that. If, if they came to us and said, your country's a shit fight, you've got eight foot high fences around, no one talks to anyone else and all of this sort of stuff and said, you need to fix that up before we'll talk to you, we'd laugh at them in their face. Yeah. But that's basically what we're going to them. We're going, you need to, to sort your act out. Um, otherwise, we won't deal with you when, when we haven't got our own shit sorted, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, what is the... Mm, I, I'm thinking accident, death rates, like the um, incidents, you know, there, there'd be a lot that happens where they just... Is it at... Like, I really have no idea. Is it at a level where... They wouldn't even know if people, if something happened to them. Because you see those crazy videos on YouTube and there's all these like villages of people and they're all down there and they're trying to get things and then the trucks come or whatever or, or the um, like the security for the mine and then they all run off and like how would they, are they those sort of people? That you're, or you're do, dealing with more the people that officially employed, that are kind of looked after by a company, um, because there's different levels of it all, isn't there? I'm sure over there. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm basically dealing with the world's poorest, so mm. they're not officially employed, employed by any large company most of the time, if at all. Um, and yeah, like they, they're, they're the type that run off if the gendarme or the police come in and, and all of that sort of stuff. So, um, but at the end of the day, they're people like us and, yes, um, yes. and they, have this, they have the same aspirations as us in terms of um, conceptual broad-based a- aspirations. You know, they want better, better lives, they want a house, they want a, you know, their kids to go to a good school so they can get a, a start in life. They're just like us, but just their, their circumstances, they were born into a different world, if that makes mm. sense. So do you have any answers? Do I have any answers? Um, for starters, there's a big push to you know want to clean up what these people do and all of that. Um, the the big thing that I'm pushing at the moment is to the extent that people are going to be displaced from work as a result of those changes, then we need to have um, alternatives for them to go to. Um, the other big challenge in this space at the moment, and I'm, I'm I'm dealing with challenges, not necessarily solutions, is that there's no cons- um, consensus as to what success in this space looks like. What are the objectives we want to achieve? And, and a big part of that is because us in the first world have got conflicting objectives amongst ourselves. So we've got the government level, we've got at the big corporate level, we've got within big corporates, we've got, um, and then we've got things like NGOs and all of that sort of stuff that flick in around them. And some of those hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. What's the NGO again? <laughs> is that a national? Uh, no, what is non-government organisation? Oh, I was going to say national government, non-government organisation. So, like other people trying to help. Other people trying to help. Yep. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of them are concerned about their own survival first and foremost. Um, yes. Um, you know, you've got government. See, we live in this world as well now, where. Um, there's competition for as population grows there's composition competition for resources amongst the big countries china russia the united states um you know europe um and just to give you some context on that it's a number i like to recite these days but in the last in the last between 2010 and 2020, only there was only 50% um, the amount of gold discovered as there were in a single year back in 1990. So in in 1990, we 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 discovered two times twice as much gold as we did in the 10 years between 2010 to 2020. And the situation we have at the moment, or we have now, is there's basically only minerals left in five places because most of the easy stuff's been found. Mm. The first is in the, in the wilderness region, so you can think Alaska or the Amazon or jungles of Central Africa. Um, the second is the polar regions. Um, the third is the marine environment, so under the ocean. The fourth is in, say, outer space in the asteroid belt. And then the fifth is the third world. And what's interesting about the third world is that's the easiest of the five. Mm. And the, the, it's my view that this focus on the third world and how they do things has just happened to coincide with us running out of minerals and running down minerals in the, in the developed world. So 
I guess who mine a lot of the minerals in the third world. It's these artisanal miners, the, the world's poorest miners that I photograph. So I, I just think there's more to it than this being about people giving us stuff about working conditions and, and, and mm. um, safety and all of that. And to sort of just to come back while I think of it, you know, that question you asked about how many people die or all of that. Um, certainly death and injury rates are going to be higher than what they are in the large-scale mining industry. But then you've got to factor in that you've got 40 million of these people doing it as well. And they, I think when your life depends on something, you tend to have a more acute sense of your safety than perhaps, you know, when you've got someone telling you what you can and can't do and what paperwork you have to fill in and all that sort of stuff, mm. if that makes sense. It does, and a lot of old-time miners will say that to us yeah. quite often. Um, there were never this much of shit going on before we had to do all your slams and hazard reports and, every, you know, all these things before you do something that you do every day. <sighs> now, can I get another beer quickly, Mumsy? Well, can I grab another beer? No way. Of course you can. One uh, question I yeah. we, we may need to revisit, but uh, do they have greenies in the third world? Chaining, um, yeah. chaining themselves and fighting against climate change and and mining and all that to the extent that we have it here or 40 million miners is they they there's a lot more of them i'd think i'm not sure <laughs> yeah no there's definitely no um people chaining themselves to trees in my experience in those places in fact if i saw if i i think the way they remove them from the tree in that case was they'd sort of leave the chains there and hack them apart with machetes most likely so um <laughs> it's kind but, of what um, i thought <laughs> Time for a beer. Okay, <laughs> yeah. give me a minute. Okay, I'll get one too. Now for a word from our sponsor, Julia Hartman and the Bantax Accounting Group. Julia's my awesome accountant. She's written two books with financial expert Noel Whitaker, and she's got a passion to help us miners make the most out of our hard-earned cash. She's got heaps of tips and make sure that we get every cent we are meant to get and is right on the ball with everything. If you head to bantax.com.au forward slash miners, that's B-A-N-T-A-C-S, you can download a free booklet all just for us miners. And there's also a spreadsheet in there that helps you check off what tools you have for your trade, like your isolation lock, work boots, seven shirts, all of these sorts of things, and you can weigh them up and it'll tell you if you qualify weight-wise to claim your trips out to work. And that's just one of the things that they've got over there. So I strongly urge you to head to bantax.com.au forward slash miners and see what they can do and find your nearest office as we come up to tax time they're really on the ball know what's going on with the tax department and there's heaps of other free information like property investing if you really plan on doing some great things with your money you want to do that right if you want to sell your house can save a lot of money if you find out what to do first rather than in hindsight and julia she'll you know make sure you get it right and if you do it wrong and then go and see her, she'll, she'll up you <laughs> in the nicest possible way because she really cares about us and wants us to keep our money and not give it to the tax department. Anyway, head over to bantax.com.au forward slash miners and tell them Mad Mumsy sent you. 
I'm actually not wearing eye protection for this um, for this interview, and I I took the, um, the the top off this last beer I'm drinking with a um, just a ordinary knife, and it nearly sort of took my left eye out. So. <laughs> Why don't you have a bottle opener if you drink beer out of what don't they have them up there in bloody WA? No. We use um, cigarette lighters or whatever else, spoons, whatever else is handy. Oh my god. All the more reason to drink a can. Here we go. Here's Mad Mumsy's favourite sound in the world. Got it. <laughs> Alright, so with 40 million people that you want to take photos of, that's going to be a shitload of books. It's a lot of photos too. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. So you, is it, um, how, what is the project? Is it just a, like one book or what's your visioning of the uh, GAM? That one. GAM Peros. GAM Peros. Yeah, look, my, my objective with it was always to um, – I wanted to give it an overview of what artisanal mining is about. So artisanal basically means by hand, um, using sort of primitive tools. So these people don't use any machinery or much machinery at all. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to give a, a sense for the diversity of um, minerals that are mined. Um, I wanted to give a sense for, you know, so you've got, like, you've got things like gold and silver and tin, tan and tungsten, copper, cobalt, manganese, iron ore, um, all, all of the usual suspects. But then you have sort of things like sulphur in an active volcano, you have um, amber, you have mammoth tusk, you have corals, you have all these other things being, you know, like mammoth tusk, think about that. Like what? They're getting that, yeah. Um, so I wanted to capture the diversity of the minerals or whatever was being mined, and then I wanted to capture diversity of the topography. So I wanted to photograph, you know, people, some of the highest altitude miners in the world, you know, mining at sort of above five, up around 5,000 metres. I wanted to capture people um, mining in the barren deserts, the tropics, the rivers, the um, savannah. Um, then I wanted to capture diversity of geography so people doing this all around the world um when i say topography she was to mention active volcano as well and then i wanted to photograph um you know diversity of culture and religion and that because this this activity happens in over 100 countries around the world so it's it's i wanted to capture that all in the one book and um, <laughs> yeah and, good and luck with that that's and I wanted to capture things like diversity of gender as well because you know 30 30 35% I'm guessing of um, artisanal mining around the world is done by women really you know? so <gasps> yeah that's what I was going to ask about the women that you've come across yeah. over there well in your whole you know mining life 35% yeah, that, yeah. Mm. so it's a substantial number um and uh, I heard the other day, where was it? Who was I talking? I was talking to a guy in Zambia. And in Zambia, women do most of the digging because the blokes are off at the pub um, drinking beers. So the women are doing the work and the kids are doing the work and the blokes are down the pub having a beer. So, hmm. And that's not something I've come across before in my, in my work, but that's, you know, as I say, every country does it, does it a bit differently. 
women in mining Zambia reached out to me on LinkedIn oh, a, f- wow. a few years ago now and said that I was really inspiring them and they were thinking of writing a, um, starting a magazine for women in mining over there. And um, did I think it was a good idea? And I was, I'm like, well, <laughs> hell yeah, you know. Like, why would you even ask is where I went initially. And then um, we've been connected ever since. And I know that they were trying to find some pink material for pink high-vis shirts and they couldn't find any anywhere and all of this. And wow. then and then um, they're doing really great. They've got like this whole um, movement going on over there and – um, just for International Women's Day this year, they asked me if I would record a video for them to share. I might cry. For them to share on their awards night that they were having um, and about uh, how I thought that it, it was good what they were doing, basically. And, wow. and, um, I did it and they, they put it on their video and, you know, I had to narrow it down. I <laughs> First one I recorded was 13 minutes. Then I got it down to seven. Um, and then out of that, they picked out about two minutes of, you know, what I recorded because I had so many wonderful things to say. So I ended up yeah, sharing well. the audio in a um, podcast about the International Women's Day, but that was in Zambia. And so... Hopefully they're not their husbands all working in the pub, <laughs> you know, yeah, or no. they're all going to the pub while they're going to the mines. Um, might be a different level of mining. I'm not sure, but um, they're trying to support each other anyway. The women over there, which is great. Yeah, I think I think the work that you do, like I think you can inspire a lot of people, and um, and and as we talked about before this started. LinkedIn can be really powerful too in the terms of the people that we we associate with and mix with and and um, yeah I think you know you, you it's amazing what you're doing and I think that um, you know you can inspire people in in some of those other lands you know and I'm sure hopefully we stay in contact and I'm sure I can sort of probably help you sort of push that reach into other places as well. Oh, thank you. That, well, thanks. Yeah, it was because um, you know I've never been overseas. So, you know, I only know what I see on the telly and that. <laughs> and, yeah, no, uh, no. Um, yeah, so it was just such an honour, an absolute honour for me. And um, I watched some of their videos to really try and make sure I said it right. Like I wanted yes. to re- – I really respected them and I wanted to make sure I pronounced it correctly. <laughs> and yeah. um, my sister said when she watched the video, she said – Oh, I could see you every time struggling with the how to pronounce it. I'm like, no, I wasn't. I was concentrating to get it right. And I re-listened. I'm like, look, that's me. I'm Mad Mumsy. And, um, yeah, it was it was a real honour. And they did a great job with their awards. And if they're listening, which they probably will, I'm so proud of you, ladies. Keep going. And watch out for Hugh if he's over there. Hugh Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Buy him a beer from Mad Mumsy. <laughs> or rum. <laughs> One of the interesting things about beer in those parts, Mumsy, you'll, you'll relate to this, is that 
Um, a beer might be 6% or 7%, but um, that's a sort of starting range and it can be sort of anywhere between about 3% and 15%. So it can be very hit and miss having beers in Africa. Oh, and are they cold or are they like room temperature? Oh, there's Well, there, well there's probably three stages. You've got room temperature and then you've got sort of esky cold, which is sort of, you know, vendors selling it by the side of the road and haven't got any much ice or if any and then you've just got if you're lucky you get one that comes out of a fridge so you've sort of always aimed for the for the latter yeah and so you really um feel connected to africa now um i certainly i feel really comfortable in africa um i love the vibe of the people i just love the people um and i love the fact that you know, anything's possible in Africa. And it's, it's generally the same through the third world. You know, if you want to, in, here in Australia, we're so bogged down by rules and regulations. And um, in Africa, it's just, you go and do stuff. And there's a sense of adventure. People, have, people haven't lost that, that zest for life, that, you know, thrill of living and all of that. And, you know, we, we can look at them and say, look, they haven't got this, they haven't got that. But to a large extent, they've got this um, happiness about them and kids are brought up by a village and not by parents behind eight foot high walls. Um, and I just love that. And I love the, the happiness. Now that doesn't mean they're any happier than what we are here in Australia. It's just because their lives are very, very different, but they've still got that, that zest for life. And, but ultimately there's, they're, they're all chasing the same things that we are, if that makes sense. So, they don't um they don't know what they haven't got like no they definitely know it they know what they're missing out on like they know what is possible they know about you know flash houses and swimming pools and travel and 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 all of that and having a house with fences like is that kind of their dreams or what are their oh what are their what are their what's something they most want? Perhaps sending their kids to a good school so they can have a better life or hmm. Yeah, it's like I said before, they they want that better life for themselves and their families. So whatever that looks like. So um, it might be a better house or a house. It might or be a buying a motorbike. House. It, yeah. Yeah, it might be might be buying a car, it might be putting the kids through better schooling so it gives them a head start over other people. But it's all contextual and it's all relative. And what I mean by that is that when you get into the villages, these people don't know to a large extent what we've got. Now, it's changing with technology, mobile phones and all the like, but they don't know what goes on here. I mean, most of those people don't know what a, you know, a, a, lawyer, a lawyer is in the traditional sense or a banker like we think of or... You know, professions, investment banker or management consultant or accountant, a lot of them wouldn't even know those job titles. So mm. they can't aspire to those things because they don't even know they exist. Um, but that, that said, they still want betterment. They, and humanity always seems to equate betterment with more material possessions and mm. better schooling and all of that sort of stuff. And I think it's only, as I said to someone, to a family in Ghana who were worried about malaria a few years ago, I said, it's only when you get what you, when you get, you guys get what you want that you then will realise what you've lost. And I think that's a, that's a, a big lesson. You know, we're all chasing that better thing without actually realising 
what things are important and what things we have already. Mm. Yes, and it's an important message too for us here and um, people in mining who think um, or they haven't got a job in mining yet and they think getting a job in the mines is going to fix everything because they'll be on the big money and it'll all be good, but it can also fuck everything or mess everything up. It can mess up your relationship. It can um, get the golden handcuffs on and you couldn't possibly leave because you can't afford to pay the mortgage working at the council <laughs> if you if you yeah. if you leave mining, you know, and um, who's going to pay the boat and the Harley and the jet ski and the all, all the toys? Um, it's a big thing, golden handcuffs, and it's something that I talk about at least going in with your eyes open because um, a lot of people say I'm going to work three to five years and pay the mortgage off, and they're still there and hate it and can't leave until they retire. Don't and if you're a contractor, don't get, dare get sick because you know you're not going to get paid if you don't go to work. Um, so it's very uh, easy to slip into that as well, even here. Oh, look, I analogise it mining, working in the mining industry, to prostitution. Um, <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> no, I better have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be good. <laughs> We're going deep. <laughs> I, it's like it's like um, you know. I'll tell you a funny story in a minute, but um, it's like people that a lot of the people that go into prostitution do so because of the money mm. and then they hate the work and then they get enough money to get out of it, but they can either never leave or they do leave and they always come back because they've gotten used to the money. And um, I, I, I think mining's, you know, FIFO and things like that are very similar because mm. people get used to the money. They, as you said, they get the golden handcuffs. It might be a big mortgage. It might be a boat, a car, and then they've just got to keep working more and more to pay off bigger and bigger obligations that they take on. And um, one of the things, actually, with this project that I found with the Garamperos, I sold my house about 18 months ago, and I did that because I sort of said, do I do I own a house to support my life, or do I live my life to support a house? And I decided that um, you know having the doing something meaningful was more important than um, than owning a house. And I think we, so many of us, and, and me included, get sort of get it the wrong, get it the other way around, and that's where it, it sort of things can can come back and bite you a little bit. Mm. It's important to know what your priorities are, and you know I was in mining thirteen years, and um, I left, and now I'm on you know, normal money, and it's tough sometimes, quite often, but I chose to leave. I The life I'm living now, I chose. I consciously chose it. I chose to be home every day. My kids were both struggling um, with different things that were going on, and I was always stuck in the middle of a fucking coal mine and couldn't do anything about it, you know, yeah. and um, so I, I chose to change that. And it's working out. I'm still here. You know, haven't gone down that prostitution route yet. Stand on the corner. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I know that was a, a few years ago. I was doing, I was doing a job for Ausdrill in Kalgoorlie and it was Good Friday. And um, so I, I, I was thinking about doing a book on Kalgoorlie and the area and stuff because it's got a lot of characters and... Um, it's about 10.30 on this Friday night, Good Friday, as, you know, not, nothing happening for Ausdrill. And 
So I thought, bugger, I'd love to go and see Lang Trees and photograph that because there's this historic building and all of that. So I, um, I thought, who do I ask where Lang Trees is without them thinking you're going in for, you know, get do the business. Oh, so and is so, is it a brothel? Langtree's a brothel, right. yeah. Right, okay, thank you. For those of us that did not know that. <laughs> very, very famous brothel in Western Australia, I might add. Right. And um, so, so I drove down and I pulled outside this BP service station and I thought, I'll go and ask this taxi driver. And before I even reached him, he looks me up and down. He said, oh, another bloke lost. <laughs> and straight away, I, you know, I laughed. And then I walked up and said, look, I'm a photographer. I'm, I'm you know, justifying the position and all of this <laughs> sort of stuff. I said... Can, I, I'm wanting to go and take some photos. Can you tell me where Langtrees is? And he said, go to the lights, turn left, go to the roundabout, turn left, and then go left again. You can't miss. And just as I was about to walk away, he looked at me and he said, mate, he said, if you've got to change the oils, change the oils. He said, we all got to change the oils. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't believe you. No. So I laughed. And, oh, um, my God. So funny. I walk into the madam. I left the camera gear in the car and I said, look, this is who I am. She said, look, most photographers we tell to fuck off because they're arrogant. She said, why don't you come in and talk to the girls? I said, yeah, no worries. So ended up talking well, to the girls. Well, hang on. I've got to interrupt because um, I'll say you are a little bit cute as well. So that probably helped you get into the hawker door. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. But, but, but um, so she said, why don't you go and sit down and talk to the girls? So I didn't. This went on for like an hour and a half and, and I'm... I'm thinking, geez, I've got to get some work done. It's like midnight. And um, I went back and spoke to her and I said, look, um, would you mind if I took some photos? And she said, no, go for your life. She said, why don't you start in the Alan Bond room? And the Alan Bond room. The Alan had all Bond these room. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Bondy. So it had all these paintings that had been done by Bondy when he was in prison. And... Oh. I've got this girl, one of the girls there, and, and I wanted photos that, you know, a six-year-old kid could look at without an issue. And, and one of the girls is sitting in this chair and um, anyway, the madam walks back in and she said, have you heard the story of Trick? Do you know who Trixie is? I said, I wouldn't have a, wouldn't have a clue who Trixie Who the fuck's Trixie? And she, she pointed this mannequin out to my right and she said, Trixie was kidnapped a year or two back. And she's, Trixie's wearing this green dinner dress, looks very flash for a mannequin. I've never been into mannequins personally, but... Um, and um, so she said, well, Trix, Trixie was kidnapped. And then um, the police came and then about a month later, all these photos rolled up. Trixie at the Palace Hotel, Trixie up the head frame, Trixie riding around a hall pack, Trixie underground, Trixie here, Trixie there, Trixie everywhere. Hmm. And the photos came. And so the, the police came back and... Um, to look at these photos and investigate further. And the guys that had pinched Trixie were waiting out the front on the other side of the road. So what they did while the police were inside was they went and strapped Trixie to the back of this police van. Oh, my God. And they took God. some photos. They took some photos with Trixie to the back of the police van with Langtrees up above and the signage. And then they sent them into the Kalgoorlie Minor, which is, um, you know, <laughs> the, the daily newspaper in Kalgoorlie. And the police took off with, with Trixie on the back, not knowing she was there. And so anyway, what happened was all these people were ringing up saying, do you realise you've got a woman strapped to the back of your van, yada, yada, yada. So that was a story oh, of Trixie. That's... But anyway, after I'd finished doing that, the madam said to me, she said, you can photograph every room in the, in the establishment. She said, we've never said that to any photographer before. No, one, no one's ever done that. So wow. that was what happened. And at the 
end of the night, I was offered a bed in the motel at the back by the madam. I said, look, it's all good, happy days. So um, it was, a, yeah, an interesting experience. So does that mean you stayed in the motel room out the back no, or you left? No, I went, I went <laughs> There's all I good, went happy to... days kind of stopped and... Yeah, <laughs> I, I went back to my I went back to my hotel and um, copped all the looks at seven. You get at seven o'clock in the morning. So. Yeah, right. Oh my <laughs> in god, in Kalgoorlie anyway. So, did you end up doing a book on Kalgoorlie? No, I no. took some. I took a, a range of photos. Some of underground miners there and all that sort of yeah. stuff. I just, it, it's just about time. And I think what I've what I've really in terms of my work in Australia, I've really focused. Most of my work in the Kimberley region and the Pilbara region, I thought I'd rather do those well over a long period of time than spread myself thinly and, you know, not cover cover areas mm. as well, if that makes sense. But I, I do love the goldfields. I love the people. I love the vibe. I love the character. Um, you, you know, the, the, it's, it's a special place and um, those older sort of mining areas always tend to be that like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard many stories about Kalgoorlie and Laverton and a few other places around there um, from family, we'll say. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Over the years and a few other miners uh, as well on the podcast. But, yeah, old Kalgoorlie, hey. And that mine is huge. And they keep, like, you know, buying more bits of the town and biting off a bit more of the hole. Oh, it's funny in Kalgoorlie. Like, I was doing some work in the super pit there years ago and, you know, you get the – you get the establishment at times get worried about photographers because they think they're going to sort of blow them out of the water and do this and everything else. And right. the clients say, oh, they're really, con- they're really concerned that, you know, you don't show anything that might put them in a bad light, which I never do. But anyway, we were, we just come round a corner and there's a bloody um, land cruiser that's been run over by a haul pack. <laughs> he said, oh, whoops. Quick, Did you get quick. a photo of that? <laughs> He said, quick, quick, grab a photo. This is the same guy that had been telling me not to take any photos. I never used it. I never showed it to anyone, but it was funny at the time. Oh, my sort of God. Thing, so, yeah. yeah. Well, and that's their biggest, their biggest thing is because people take a photo and then put it on their Facebook and, it, and it's out yeah. there and it's, you know, and that, that was a big thing for me. All I wanted officially was a photo of me with a truck that I could put on my courses and all my branding and all that as Mad Mumsy was starting to come out of the closet because I, bet- <laughs> I hid behind a cartoon character for a couple of years. And once, oh, yeah. and once it was that it's Leandrew, you know, that chick that used to be on your crew. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, oh, well, you know, especially BMA here, I tried. Heaps of different supervisors. Oh, yeah, what you're doing is great. You know, it shouldn't be a problem. Oh, no, you can't, you know. Fuck off. And then I went back to a mine where I'd worked for a long time and they were totally the opposite. They were amazing. And I took my good good camera, we'll get to your cameras soon, um, and I was allowed to take it to work and take it in my truck and take photos and get photos. And I said at pre-start now, this is what I'm doing, I've got approval and all that, and I took all these photos, but then I had to submit them and I was allowed to do it but just take away their logo off each machine. It was okay to leave the numbers on there but just take the logo off. And then uh, the next Christmas, I think it was, they gave us all a USB stick with shitloads of photos on it of... um, drag lines and dozers and diggers from different angles, like really good photos that trainers and stuff had been taking. 
and I asked if I could have permission to use those and they said, yeah, if you do the same thing. And I submitted a whole bunch of photos where I'd gone into Photoshop and removed all the bits and, and stuff and resized them and I got full approval to use them. So they're in my courses and stuff now. I've got a whole... Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I've got a whole webinar that's... Um, or PowerPoint presentation, you know, that's about machines you'll see on site. And yes. and then I talk about those machines and what else they might be called and, you know, what sort of asshole might be driving it <laughs> and yes. how to deal with it or whatever, you know, digger, dozer, blah, blah, blah. So um, that was gold and it took me over five years to be able to get an official photo oh, permission. And that's a big part of... When I saw what you are, I'm like, well, how the hell did he end up doing that <laughs> and yeah, get the yeah. permission, no, you know? It's a nightmare. It's an absolute bloody nightmare. Um, mm. You know, some of the work, some of my best work's been taken, actually not commissioned by mining companies. It's just been when I got a helicopter and I just, we go for a fly and I get some of the best photos doing that way, you know, and just, um, yeah, but it's it's getting... It's getting sillier and sillier and sillier, unfortunately. Mm. And it's all about, well, <laughs> this one band camp that I know, which is what I say, you know, I don't name and shame. That's not what I do, yeah, why yeah. I do what I do. But one band camp I know, a truck had gone over the coal tip head up on the ROM on night shift and I was on holidays um, it happened to be at a mine I knew and I got a photo in a message that said how to park a truck at said mine. I was like, what the fuck? And then it, w it went all around the mining industry, you know, like on Facebook and that, and heads rolled. It was they were trying to figure out who was oh, there at yeah. that time and, and then yeah. that just made it even more strict and because they're still doing an investigation and, you know, especially if – People have died and shit, which sadly happens too often. Um, that's what starts it. People doing silly things like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, you just want a photo with your truck. And that's part yeah. of what I share in my courses is don't put shit on, on, um, on Facebook and don't say that if you – because their social media policy says if you say you work at said mine – when you're on social media, you can be seen as representing them. So when they told us that at a pre-start meeting, we were allowed no, to have yeah. our phones back then, not in our truck, but, you know, not using them in our truck, but we were allowed to have them. This is a long time ago. I walked out of that meeting, down to the light vehicle, went on my Facebook page and removed where I worked. <laughs> like, I don't work here. And no. he's like, because, you know, yeah. it was sackable offence. And... Yeah. Um, you got to look after your job, mate. It's it's not that important to share yeah. the world, you know. Um, so yes, as a photographer, I'm sure you can relate. Yeah, it's just I respect everywhere I go, and and I respect the people that I shoot, and and it's getting harder and harder the industry to work in as a photographer. It's just getting you know the safety's been you know a challenge that I've found with my work. Because, you know, one minute I'm, you know, I might be up in a helicopter, the next minute I'm riding around a hall pack, next minute I'm photographing a digger, next minute I'm sort of on a blast pattern um, and, 
you know, it's next minute I'm out bush, next minute I'm driving in a remote area and they just can't seem to get their heads around it a lot of the time. And, you know, things that were considered perfectly safe 10 years ago are now considered highly dangerous. So mm. um, it's all right for those people coming into the industry now because they get used to that. But if you know what, if you've been around for a while and you know what's safe and what's not, it just gets, it gets quite difficult. Yeah. And so um, you'd have to do shitloads of inductions and stuff, site inductions all the time. Yeah. How do you go with those? Oh, they're just the bone, the, the bone of my existence because most of <laughs> what I need most of the time is a visitor induction, just a 20-minute, this is what you've got to do. Remember the, um, you know, remember the sort of um, ERT number if something goes to Here's shit. Emergency. And then, um, yeah, that's it. But that's a, but the rest of the time it's about having, you know, the best advice I was given in the mining industry happened, I think it was last year. And it was a mate of mine, a guy called Mo, who was the laziest bugger I've ever met, I think, but he was a funny bugger. And um, he just said, mate, just the, the best advice he gives is to people is to just have your head on a swivel. You know, 360 degree vision, just keep your eyes open, look up, look down, look to your side, look in front, look behind you. And um, he said, if you do that, you won't have any problems. And um, I thought that was pretty good advice. Mm. There you go, all my newbies. Just go and get a new neck <laughs> with, a, <laughs> with a swivel on it. <laughs> I love that. A new, I can't do it. That Like the exorcist. Uh, yeah, it, it, it does. It, it gets out of hand. But that's another, that could be another whole podcast episode right there. Um, yes. So you said you go in helicopters. Do you have a drone? Mm. Do you get into drones yet? Or are you old um, school I do. photographer? I'm more old school. Mm. I do use drones. I, I don't tend to, although one of the best photos I've ever taken I took this week actually um, with a drone of all places. Um, and I knew it was going to hurt and I we went in um, on Wednesday afternoon and um, copped a ripper dose of heat stroke and I knew it was going to hurt but you just suck it up um, and just I just carefully to say to people don't disrespect heat, heat stroke but um, I've been around a while and I know what my limits are but um, yeah, so that got a really good image. But most of the time I, I actually prefer working in helicopters. And last year I did a job over two weeks with a mate of mine who owns a large helicopter company. And um, I photographed helicopters from helicopters for two weeks. And that was probably my what? nirvana. <laughs> mm. Oh, yes, that's cool. And we did some interesting things. We, um, we got three helicopters in a row over one of the largest open cut mines in the world. And that was the winds were really tricky too because you you got to match winds and light and um, you know hover direction and light, and that was that was really really tricky. Um, and then we did some other stuff around the Pilbara as well. It was just an amazing, an amazing sort of uh, trip that doesn't come along. You know, one of those shoots doesn't come along that often, but yeah. we had some really good fun, awesome fun. So I'm thinking as a photographer, right? Look at me. I'm a professional photographer. I did a wedding once <laughs> for a local. Yes. Well, yes, charged a whole $200 um, awesome. and actually went into a church um, but didn't know where. Oh, it was awful because I'm didn't. i not real religious and I wasn't sure where to stand and I didn't want to get in the way and I knew I needed to make sure I got the what are the important bits like, you know, the hus the dad walking old love down the aisle and the ring going on the finger and, and then, yes. I, and then the reception and all that. And, um, 
I should have charged a lot more because it was a shitload of work. Um, but I loved it. It was, it was really good. It was it was good at the time because I did always want to be a photographer. Yes. Um, what was, where was I going with that before that? Photographer. Oh, yes. So do you prefer being in a helicopter because you can actually see – you can see it – better yourself rather than from a drone looking at a does it feel like a bit outworldly like it's not oh, actually your eyeballs even though it is through there like you know what i mean does that make sense to you look when you're in a helicopter you've got virtually 360 degree vision so you can look up down behind you in front of you when you've got a drone you literally you've got that small angle of view that the drone presents to you and um i just I don't know, I just don't get the same. It's nothing better than, for me, the helicopter's one of the, my favourite things in doing in my life. So something that takes that away tends to be, um, you know, not as enjoyable, if that makes sense. Yeah, so standing on the ground with, like, a PlayStation <laughs> instead of being up there in an actual helicopter. Do you hang out Do you hang out the side and, you know, or I bet you've been in some wild different helicopters. Especially in Africa. Yeah, I've been in a f- <laughs> uh, well, I've done some. I've done a wild, seriously wild helicopter ride in Africa, um, and I've done some seriously wide helicopter, wild helicopter rides in Australia as well. Um, in Africa, it was actually back in uh, 2010, I think it was, and I was flying with the Cameroon Air Force, and um, we got stuck in a storm above the Central African jungle, which is one of the biggest jungle, the second biggest jungle in the world, and um, I was flying, I had, the, I had two pilots, I had a, a well I had um, the colonel who was the main pilot and I had um, his offside, a lieutenant who I called Top Gun <laughs> and um, we got stuck in this storm and um, it was, what happens in the, over the jungle is a cloud base comes in very, very low and we were stuck in this pocket of visibility that's sort of probably 140 not any direction and we had to hover there for like 20 minutes, half an hour and the, the the pilot was shitting himself. Where my or everyone was, um, and I, just to break the ice a little bit, I um, said to it was all in French as well. And I said to the Top Gun, I said, "Hey mate, can you ask the pilot if you can take us up to ten thousand feet? I just want to get a photo." And it went quiet for me. The next thing, top, uh, the pilot comes back. He said, "What is he fucking crazy?" Um, <laughs> and it was you know just just a joke. But yep. You got to do when the shit's going down. You got to do that a little bit, but um, hmm. yeah. And then, and then in in Australia, we've done some pretty hairy stuff as well at times. And that look, that just comes about if you if you want to get the shots. At, at times, you have to step out your comfort zone, and you know that things could go wrong, but you still make that decision because you you want to go after something. And um, yeah, but I love love working with helicopters. Just love it. Mm. I had a mate who was training to, I was going to say drive a helicopter, <laughs> fly a helicopter. Yeah, I was working with him on crew, actually. G'day, plugger. And um, I must touch base and see how he's going. On, he's on Snapchat. We're friends on Snapchat. So. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I know. He, he was putting in a lot of hard yards. So, um, yeah, young fella good on him he had a he had a dream he had a vision hopefully he's he's made it come true which is always the best, important. The best pilots 
the best pilots I've found are the mustering pilots because they mm. operate in the death zone a lot of the time, you know, below 500 feet. And also the marine pilots that fly, um, you know, from port out to landing on the ships and stuff. And they're, they're brilliant pilots as well. So, um, yeah, if, you, if you're working with either of them or, you know, photographing with in a helicopter that's piloted by a mustering pilot or one of them, you, you're generally pretty right. The, the ones that I've found that don't do so well are the city pilots that, you know, uh, rules-based rules rather than experience-based sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Talk to me about your cameras. I bet you got some pretty sexy shit. I bet, like, <laughs> have you – do you get obsessed and keep upgrading or, or you know, you need the latest one? Like, I don't buy shoes, I buy software. <laughs> um, look, I'm not a – I'm not a um, – I'm not a techo at all. So what that what that means, mumsy, is I upgrade because I I look at result. I look at the result that I want to achieve, and if something's going to give me that result, um, then that's what I do. Um, now that said, I probably only use five percent of the capability of a camera. So, yeah. um, and I think that's probably the case with most people. Um, so. Um, so yeah, so it's I've got I, I think I've got I've got uh, the I've up, upgraded recently to mirrorless, so I'm still learning how to use uh, just getting used to the buttons and all that, and it's driving me mad. Um, and then I wish actually I wish I had have um, had the camera the other day. I was we'd just driven past this place up here in the Kimberley on the Gibb River Road the other day, and um, we we're coming back and. We're debating amongst ourselves as to whether there might be crocodiles in this particular pool. It was just a fairly innocuous pool. Uh, we decided that likely there wouldn't be saltwater crocodiles, but probably be freshwater crocodiles there. And um, oh, anyway, that's I decided all right to go fishing. Then. That's all right yeah, then, they're right? Not, <laughs> they're not so bad. But um, <laughs> I went fishing the other the other day, and I was coming back later later in the evening, sort of you know, been fishing on the Pentecost River, and. I'm doing about 80 k's an hour and I'm, you know, doing things that I shouldn't be doing in the car and nearly hit a bull and then cleaned up an owl and um, don't know how many cane toads and whatever else. Next thing I look up, I'm crossing the King River at 80 k's an hour and I go, holy shit, and there were two saltwater crocodiles crossing the road. <gasps> and I, I'm not kidding, I did everything that I could but, um, but run over these two saltwater crocodiles. Shit. So I missed them by literally a, no more than a metre and a half. Um, so that was quite in interesting, but yeah, so I use, I still shoot film for my, um, for my landscape work. Film. I've got a large format. Film. Yeah. True. Yeah. You're right. Nothing gives a color, rend renders the color of like film does. Mm. So I, I love, I love doing it old school for my landscapes and then for everything else I'm using digital mirrorless now. So, um, yeah. And do you do all your editing and that yourself? Very little, um, um, I, I really prefer to, it's not a, it's not a preference. It's a, it's a requirements for me most of the time to, to get the image the best that I possibly can when I shoot it. So, you know, there might be two or 3% edit improvement, but that's about it. I, I'm one of these people that don't like the trend towards Photoshop and, and people doing 80% of their work in on the computer rather yeah. than the camera when they take the photo. Mm. And it, it's a bit like what I say when I help people with podcasting and stuff is try to set up right from the start and it's going to save you a shitload of time later trying to remove background noises or whatever. But it's worth putting in the effort. Like I said to you, if you can be in a smaller room, not an open plan tiled area, and if you've got any earplugs in. And then when you said 
I can record my my uh, audio separate as well if you want. I was like, oh, <laughs> I was so happy because that's so good for my listeners. That's what is preferred and it's officially apparently called a double ender. So you, <laughs> I was like, yeah, they're joking, but no, that's what it is. So I'm recording yeah. – we're on Zoom, so we're looking at each other yes. on video, but I just use the audio and get a couple of screenshots. And, um, but I'm recording into my uh, Zoom H4N Pro, and you're recording your end as well, and then Hugh will send me his audio track, and I'll get mine, and I'll put them together in Adobe Audition, and then that's how I'll edit it, and we lined up with our clap, <laughs> hopefully, which does... We got the clap. Yeah, and then... <laughs> We yeah, not going there, um, and that uh, yeah. So it's the same with photography. Get it? That makes sense to do that because I um, I think I did most of my wedding in the editing after. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's um, yeah. Cause just get it right when you do it. It's not hard to get it right when you do it. If you it's, you know, life's ninety nine percent preparation, one percent. Um, one percent doing most of the time. You get the preparation right, and you, you the the doing usually comes off as well. So, mm. yeah. Now, I did see one of your books on your website that was uh, about trains in the Pilbara, but it wasn't available mm. publicly. Um, that would have been cool. How did you? How did you? Did you go on? I've had a coal train driver, Joe Sainsbury, on the podcast. Did you go for some trips on trains and shit? Yeah, we did more than that. Um, it was a it was a bloody nightmare of a project, if you ask me. But um, I met some amazing people, and um, again, it came back to just that fact that safety people often quite can't, can't get their heads around what a photographer does, and the fact that they're sort of working across all aspects of the value chain and the business. And um, but once we worked a way around that, um, yeah, we managed to make it work. It was it was it was a tough project, um, but what I had to do there was um, interview and photograph forty or fifty of Rio Tinto's longest-serving train drivers because they were at this sort of interesting um, juncture in their history where they were introducing driverless trains. So we could probably, they called the project Auto Hall. So I was capturing capturing the life before all of that changed, and since since that book came out, that's all changed now. And most of the train drivers have lost their jobs for Rio anyway, in terms of their network. And um, but yeah, we did. I think when I got started, because it was the book was basically my concept, and to sort of get some sort of nibble of interest for of the management and all of that. One of my one of my mates in rail, he was in the. Um, one of the managers in operations, he uh, snuck me in. I think he might. Have, well, I don't. Think, <laughs> I can't say for sure, but it's possible that he snuck me in as his um, as his cousin. And so, because I was his cousin, I was able to go on a train ride with such and such a person, where I happened to take such and such a photo. And that photo we happened to show to the management, and that was basically how the book started. And um, it took about two or three years to do, but really grateful for the people that I worked with for the management that backed the project and um, for what we ended up achieving so um, you know an interesting journey oh yes oh and the people that you've met over this time I bet you have you made lifelong friends as well 
on and off, I suppose. You know, if you see him again, it'd be like, G'day, mate, like you've seen him yesterday, and it might have been 15 years. Yeah, there's certainly that aspect to it. I think a photographer friend of mine in Boston said to me once, he said, and he was right, he said one of the things about being a photographer is that um, you drive into people's lives very quickly and very deeply and then you might never see them again. Um, but the beauty of uh, now is we have things like Facebook and um, we have those platforms where it becomes easier to stay in touch. And, yeah, you know, a lot of the train drivers still in, in touch with and, and really grateful for the, you know, that we're able to do that because um, they're, they're some of the highest quality people some of the highest quality people I've come across in the mining industry, they, 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 they took incredible pride in, in the work that they did. They were proud people and, you know, they're, they're old school as well, which to some extent in the industry today gets lost by the sort of um, us against them mentality, which applies from both sides of the industry, if that makes sense. So um, where the employees are all about themselves and the employee, and then the companies are all about themselves, the train drivers weren't like that at all, and I really respected that. Mm. Yeah, that's that's good. And there's, you know, the big contractor debate, especially over here, um, and the us and them mentality and lots of mining inquiries into that and to if that has anything to do with, you know, what a lot of our deaths that we've had over here and stuff. The us and them mentality, I've felt it, I've lived it, Um it's not good. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. And um, shit needs to change. But I'm not going on that rant because I've done <laughs> – I even did a podcast about how many fucking podcasts I've done about this. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Got it. I, you know, I'm like, I did this four years ago and they had a mining inquiry and all these things were going to change and nothing. And now they're having another mining inquiry. And then they had an inquiry into – um, the blast that they had at Grosvenor, and I watched that inquiry because we were in COVID, and so you know there's nothing else to do. I was at home. Let's watch the mining inquiry live, <laughs> live streamed. It was so cool watching all these mine managers and everyone being drilled, whereas they'd normally be doing it to us, you know. And it was all about yeah. the paperwork and the date wasn't right and this and that. And but every time it came back to the question, do you, you know, how do you treat contractors on site? Do you think there's an us and their mentality? Do they feel safe to speak up? And this was about an explosion and that whole thing was coming up again. And uh, it was very interesting. So that's when I did my, like, I don't know, the third one about the rant. And then that's when the ABC contacted me around that time. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's right. Because <laughs> it's shit. Yeah, We've the, already, we know yeah, it's wrong, so change it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes. So, anyway, I think we might be starting to draw to a close. Well, how are you feeling there? We've got, I do. Yeah, no, not too bad. Yeah. If I grabbed another beer, I'd probably be right, but it's up to you as to how, what, how much you want to go, how long you want to go, Mumsy. Well, we've been in a couple of hours, but we ranted for a while ourselves. I, you know, I can talk all night. But we, <laughs> we know, okay. we know that. Yeah. No, I would like. Let's get another beer. Um, yep. I'd like to touch on. We'll, we'll definitely cover whether people can buy your books, 
and um, where they can, like I did when I had a little bit of a stalk out and saw some of your photos and that, they can just have a look. So I'll share all those links in the show notes, which is madmumsy.com forward slash beers 83. But I would like to know, I've got written here wildest things you've seen overseas and stuff like that. So while you're getting a beer... Have a will All right, I'll, I'll have a have think. Have a think. I'll Hit us with some story. I'll get another one as well. Um, yeah, no, like I, as it turned out, like I, I had a meeting and that finished after midnight last night and the plan was that I was going to jump in the car and go drive to this fishing spot. It's about an hour from here. And I thought, shit, I was absolutely buggered and um, I thought that, uh, I don't know, like I just thought, when you're tired, things can go wrong. And where I where I was mm. wanting to go fishing, there's some big crocodiles, mm. and I need to I need to get my fishing spot right, my, my camping spot right. And then yes. there's some pretty serious washouts, and um, it's a pretty serious track at times to get into. So I ended up just staying staying back here. So that's probably what I what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'll probably head up there and go fishing there tomorrow night. So yeah. Well, make sure you stay safe. <laughs> but, you know, you've been doing it for a long time now, haven't you? No, it doesn't mean that you're going to always pull through. We've had mm. too many close calls, so... Complacency, um, see, that's what they preach. Yeah. Complacency, and that's why they make you do a, a slam or a hazard report or whatever they want to call it, depending where you work, every time you feel up. Yeah, do yeah. Do it every yeah. day, but don't be complacent. And like my sis, no. my sister always, <laughs> what does she, um, you know, if they put a sign up about something. And she's like, sign, sign, everywhere a sign. Because, you know, you see, a, <laughs> you, you see a sign and once you've seen it often enough, it's not even a sign anymore, is it? Until, until they change it. <laughs> oh, ka-ch. Because things are always ka Cheers. You can't assume always because always thing, things have always been okay before that they're always going to be okay going forward. And no, that's right. Yeah, it's like driving your car, isn't it? Shit can go down at it any is. time driving your car. It's the same as driving a truck or a grader or a drill or a camp. Usually, usually when things usually when things go to sh- usually when things go to shit as well, they can turn pretty quickly, and um, that's might be my experience and. Um, you can be going gangbusters and then in the space of half an hour, your life's on the line and it can be just a real shitstorm. So um, that's one lesson I've learned along the way, but, you know, particularly with some of the things that I do. Mm. Yeah, good point. So have you done, in your roles, have you ever done, I don't, know, it doesn't sound like you would have, a roster, <laughs> like huh? two and one or anything like that? I did it for a brief period, actually, in the middle there, because when COVID hit, like, I couldn't travel for my work and photography was just cut right out. And so I did some uh, some um, shutdown work and rope access work. And um, I absolutely, I mean, I just hated it, <laughs> if I'm honest. I really hated it because I don't, even in my work, I don't really like photographing large-scale mining operations just because the safety stuff does my head in now. But... Um, 
yeah, it was. I just found it tough. But I, I, I like the challenge of rope access, but I've always been scared of heights. So it was a bit of a sort of a juxtaposition doing that as well. So um, mm. but glad, glad for the experience. I'm scared of heights too. I don't like it. You know, when I, I was uh, operating a loader and they were a little smaller one and then they put me up onto a bigger one. Oh, no. Nah. Get just sitting there and with the loader bucket right up in the right up in the air. Yeah. If it, it might as well have been me up there. The feeling that I had just freaked me out. I'm like, yeah, nah, I'm not doing that. No. <laughs> Fuck that, well, I don't want to drive no. the loader. I'll drive the little one. No. And just do yeah. cleanups and lighting plant buns and stuff. Um Yeah. Yeah. I do have a couple of little short questions and then I'll I would like to hear any crazy stories that you have. But um, this could be, this could be one of them. Steel cap boots. I'm sure that even in Africa, do you have to wear steel cap boots? Yeah, you still have to. You have to wear steel caps in Africa, and yes. contrary to what most people realise, uh, Africa, most of the, a lot of the um, large scale mines in Africa basically work to Australian standards. So, mm. yeah, pretty much same rules apply in Africa as they do in Australia. Yep. Um. But not for those poorer miners. Then no, no. right, yeah. Who no, don't have a voice and don't count, kind of. Yeah. Is that how it is? Yeah, yeah. Sad. Pretty much. Yes. Yeah. So, with your steel cap boots, have you had any events around yours? Like, have you had any critters in them? Have you got stuck at airports with them? Have you got left them at home and you couldn't go and? You got any boot stories? I can be pretty boring. I'm pretty boring on that front. Never That's had a okay. story touch wood with steel cap boots. But I you haven't had a scorpion a- in there or anything. No, I always keep it above ground and always sort of put my stuff um, where nasties can't climb in when I'm out bush. Um, yeah. But a friend of mine, a photographer friend of mine is elderly. Uh, I remember we are going through Newman Airport. We'd done a shoot together and uh, – He's a very well-known photographer, and um, he kept triggering off the, um, the X-ray screen when he went through. And it turned out he had, um, you know, whatever in his legs. He had metal in his legs from previous oh, metal plates right. or whatever. But he thought, bugger, he'd just keep going through and not telling him what was inside. So <laughs> that was quite funny. We got a good oh. laugh out of that. And then eventually he had to tell them, or did they just give up? And say, oh, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Let, got through, but let I'm not the sure bomber on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we've had a few stories on the podcast of steel cap boots, scorpions in there. And I know I worked with a guy who had a frog, a green tree frog in his right through until first crib. He was driving the digger and he was, you know, under the pump production wise and knew that there was something weird going on in his shoe and he when he took it out at crib time, there was a, a crispy green tree frog in there. It was still alive. Wow. And I love green tree frogs. And I yeah. I rescued it and gave it a bit of a swizzle up and washed it and found a blade of grass for it somewhere for it to get on. But, um, yeah, he didn't. He Actually, I have. Yeah, go. I have got one. But I knew you would. It wasn't in the context of mine. I wore this bloody pair of steel caps. So it, was, it was the first survival course I ever did back in 2006. And I wore these steel caps on this survival course. It was about a 150k walk we had to do with no food and water through through the Pilbara in October. Why? And uh, about, uh, Just because you can. And about <laughs> five great. days in, 
I got, got the world's biggest blisters wearing these bloody steel caps. And I'm not kidding, the pain was just unbelievable. Uh. Like every step there was a, a bolt of pain going up both legs, up the back of both legs into the back of the head. And But I ended up making it. I had 80 k's to go at that stage and I ended, ended up making it, but never again to wear steel caps when you're out bush on a hike. Oh, it no. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Mm. No. No, that would suck. And... um. Uh, have you had to do night shift? These are just a couple of my standard questions I ask on and off if we have time. Any any sleeping tips for those on night shift? A lot of the photos I do are actually taken at night because night gives you often gives yes. you better lighting conditions than day. Mm. So I usually work. Let's say a shoots for on any given mine is for say three days. I'll do two night shifts in that process plus day shift as well. Um, and, yeah, um, any sleeping tips, just get a quiet donger. Make sure you're sort of away from where all the bloody um, reversing bu- uh, buzzers are at 4 o'clock in the morning. Like we get a choice, um, mate. We don't get a fucking yeah. choice. <laughs> you're in room 6-2. <laughs> Shit, I'm in, the, I'm in the crap end. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, do you get a choice? Are you special? Do they look after? Do they look after you? Usually, they look after us pretty well because um, usually we're working sort of at a reasonably senior level. So the people people they put the request through and just say, make sure you, well, yeah, well, say we want this and this and this, and they'll usually sort of look after that. So mm. um, that's but good. Certainly, yeah, that is good. That is good. And you say we? Do you have other people? Yeah, Car- sometimes carry I'll take your ass- cameras. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'll take an assistant along with me. Oh right, um, yeah. Usually on the bigger bigger jobs like that rare book we did, um, I'll take take an assistant along with me, and and um, yeah, we just we watch each other's back, and just you know, when one one starts to flag, the other one sort of picks them up, and vice versa. So mm. um, yeah. So are they photographer as well, or a wanna- um, wannabe photographer. Maybe. A fixer usually, a fixer or it might be a videographer. So the, the story that I told you about in Cameroon and the chopper, I had a videographer working for me. Mm. Um, he was crapping himself because he wasn't used to flying in helicopters and then we're in the storm. And then um, for the Rio book, I had a fixer. So he just basically, you know, organises what I need to happen and, you know, often acts as a, often acts as sort of a, um, like a, a buffer for some of the rubbish you have to go through in dealing with some of these these companies as well. So, and you know that's not to denigrate any of the companies. It's just some of the rubbish that goes on in these companies is next level. So, usually sometimes that does my head in. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, like the logistics of it all. Like we we need a like vehicle to get out of there to get on the helicopter to get the this and the that or it's more than that. Well, part of it. It's. It's more, I'll give you an example. I remember, what was it? I wanted to light a fire out bush on a... On a mine site. No, out bush, <laughs> out bush bush. Bush bush, okay. But when, when, when we're doing a large, for a large-scale mining company, and there's a reason for it. And it was a big open clay pan that I wanted to put this thing in with no vegetation around. And this company had trains going up and down this particular area, lighting fires left, right and centre because um, the, the grinding train grinding train throws out a lot of sparks and anyway they said look leave it with us we'll come back to you so they come back and said great news here you can you can have your fire I said fantastic 
They said, oh, it's just one problem. I said, what's that? They said, uh, you'll have to have it in a drum. I said, it's not going to work in a drum. In a drum. And they said, oh, it only needs to be half a drum. I said, it doesn't care. It changes the whole photo. It's not going to work. I said, let's go. We'll do something else. Oh, no, don't be like that. And I was, in the end, I just threw it to him and fixed it. I said, you go and sort it out because I was starting to do my head in. Yeah, right. Anyway, they came back and he said, and he came back and he said, oh, great news. You don't need the drum. But what they're going to do is they're going to cut the drum in half. You have to put the drum around the fire. And by the way, by the way, you have to buy your own firewood. <laughs> I know. Like, this is out bush, you know. Like we, I camp, I don't know how many days a year I camp out bush and a lot made fires and they're worried about buying firewood. It was just ridiculous. Oh, my God. Oh, so did you do it or did you just think, fuck that? Yeah, we did. We yeah. did. We put the drum around the fire and all of that, but um, we might have done a few without the drum around the fire too. So, so was the... <laughs> purpose of taking that photo like to show the fires that the trains start along the track no no that was just it was purely just to do a portrait of a guy working in the thing and as the rail grinding train went past and because the sparks coming out at night it shows what the sparks come out from the train so that was the reason for doing the shot at night so um but yeah, it was certainly a bit of a it was certainly a bit of a, a head cluster, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'd call that a head fuck. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I was that's what you said. So I told you I'll swear more than you probably. <gasps> <laughs> Too long in mining. Um, right, got any crazy stories from? I think I think we've heard of, we've already heard a few. There's a lot. I, I mean, in the context of the work that I do. One of the craziest places I ever worked in was a place called Cerro Rico in Bolivia. And Cerro Rico is probably the most dangerous mountain on the planet. And since the mining began there in 1545, they mined silver and tin, um, old-style mining. And um, they reckon between four and eight million people have died as a result of that mountain since 1545. How many? And Sorry, so, how many? I was having a drink. I missed it. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, four to eight million people. Four to eight. That's why I was like, what? Million or thousand? Yeah. Million. Million, yeah. Get So it was a really, really dangerous place. And I remember, I remember arriving in Potosi in Bolivia and, uh, and the first thing that struck me was like the smell of death was everywhere. Like it was just, there was this feeling of death, people dressed in black. Oh. Um, everyone, everyone talked about the mountain. Everyone knew that... Um, Everyone knew that um, it was a it was a dangerous place. Everyone everyone in Potosi had lost relatives or friends. Everyone. And so when I I spent six weeks working inside that mountain, and every morning that I went to go inside that mountain, you would wake up. I'd literally wake up. I'd be in the shower, and I'd be going, thinking to myself, "Am I going to make it out that night?" And um, then you get to the mountain, and they'd start, you know. They'd be chewing coca leaf at about 8 o'clock in the morning or 7.30 and they'd enter the, mount enter the mountain at about 8 or 9 in the morning. And when you got inside the mountain, quite often you're working inside, you know, you're moving alongside inside tunnels at about 5 foot high, which doesn't sound that low, but I'm 6 foot 1 and you've got to... Mm. Um, and then, then you'd have ore carts ru rushing at you at high speed and, and then there were 50 metres between alcoves. Now, if you got caught between alcoves, you've got a, a cart running it. If you can't run faster than that cart, you're going to get crushed to death. 
Mm. And I worked out there were about six or seven different ways inside that mountain that you could die. And those ways included falling off a ladder, falling down a void, um, blast, um, a deadly you know, a blast going wrong, rock falls, um, deadly gases, um, yeah, crushing accidents, um, and whatever else. And, um, the moment you entered the mountain, even though you'd been worried about whether you'd come out that night, and I never told anyone whether that I was worried about coming out that night, um, you had to forget all of that and put your game face on and, and focus on the now, because if you didn't focus on the now, you could die in the now. And, mm. and so that was just, that was such a crazy place. And, um, it was, it, it was, you know, within 15 minutes of entering the first time, there was like a, a, an explosion that sounded like, and it was, it was a pipe blowing. And I thought there was a rock fall. I've just hit the, hit the bolt straight to get out of there, but very, very difficult place. I did some of the most difficult, so some of the most dangerous things I've ever seen in mining in that place, probably the most, no, the most dangerous things I've ever seen in mining. You know, we were moving deep inside the mountain, um, on our stomach, carrying gear, through gaps of about 18 inches on 50 degree slopes going down and coming up. Um, and, and the other thing too was this mountain was 4,792 metres high, but it was collapsing in on itself because it had all these voids um, that had been mined that weren't mapped. And it was like a piece of Swiss cheese and the, mine was, the mountain was collapsing in on itself. So at some stage that mountain is going to collapse again. It's going to take out 1,500 people in one hit, you know, like... It's just, it was just an absolute fuck show. And, um, but again, those people chose to be there. I chose to be inside. I didn't have to go inside it. They didn't have to go inside it. And the other thing, when I was there, there was about three to five a month, they reckon, dying. And a lot of them were being whisked away in the middle of the night in ambulances back to the village so that people didn't know, you know. So you keep working. <laughs> There's no, no mind shut down when someone dies, probably. Is that even no? no, not at all, not at all. Um, even <laughs> don't even just don't Cameroon, tell anybody. <laughs> they don't tell anyone, and even in Cameroon, um, I, got, I got photos of lung X-rays of deceased miners from silicosis, and yeah, they were operating at eighty percent lung, twenty percent lung capacity at altitudes um, of fifteen, sixteen thousand feet, where the oxygen levels are fifty percent. Um, of what they are at sea level, you know, just think about that. But mm. yeah, ca- ca- Cameroon, I was working in, um, I was photographing divers that were diving for sand. And these divers were uh, bringing up buckets of sand and each diver would pull up an average of about 1.7 tonnes of sand from diving, no diving gear, in a three and a half hour shift. And they had to deal with hazards of, you know, ingress of sand into the nostrils, things like, um, hitting their head on the bottom of the kite on the, the canoe when they surfaced at night and getting knocked out and washed away with the tide or venomous snakes coming down on weed mats or you know getting the bends even doing what they were doing it was like just crazy stuff and that these are the people that I spend most of my time working with these days bloody hell yeah have a drink mate you're freaking me out just <laughs> hearing it all <laughs> so oh but you know, there was a guy up in the Russian sub in the Russian subarctic, old uh, um, Victor. And I spent three trips trying to find these people, and and everyone told me these people didn't exist, and I bloody knew they did. I just had a sense for it. And he, he camps out in where he is on his own. He's over sixty, and he camps out there, um, prospecting, not prospecting for gold, processing gold ore, alluvial stuff, 
um, in minus 60 degree, um, sub minus 60 degree in the middle of winter, like just that's 60 degrees Celsius, like mm. just crazy stuff. Wow. Um, in that crazy mountain, I wrote down here, I was trying to remember what they're called. <laughs> I know. Get that. Oh, yeah. No, that's not what I meant. The, um, I know the answer's going to be no, but I'm still going to ask it. Did you have a personal lock outside the mine that you had to remove when you came out of the hole? No, 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 no. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I knew that was going to be a no. no. But I just needed to ask because we don't, we, that's I don't the wear helmets in a lot of these. Mm. I don't ever wear helmets in a lot of these places, and that's just how it is. You know, I take the risk, I make the decision. Um yeah, but no, definitely no locks or tag tag boards or anything like tag that. Tag board, that's the word. Yeah, crazy old crazy times. Like. Even in the, I worked in an active volcano in Indonesia, and these guys were carrying out sulphur, um, you know, average loads of seventy kilos at a time, and deadly gases, seventy kilos. 70. And that's average. Yeah. Oh, it's a two-man lift. It's a two-person lift, I should say, over twenty okay. kilos or whatever. If you, if <laughs> now, you go to the if you go to the Pilbara, it's a seven-person lift. Um, <laughs> uh, well, in Queensland, it's only two, right? Like, <laughs> I can harden up, WA. <laughs> but but um, yeah, like in the like one of the hardest things about these places is like from from a personal perspective is. Um, doing risk assessments before you go. And I'm, I'm methodical and meticulous in terms of how we go about my preparation. But assessing risk from afar before you leave Australia to go to another country is really, really difficult. Mm. And um, quite often the risk, that you, the perceived risk exceeds the actual risk. But it's like, it comes back to what we were saying before, you've got to never be complacent and because it's when you drop your guard and assume that the actual risk is less nah. than the perceived risk and that's when something will go wrong. Yeah. And, um, you know, in, in Indonesia, I worked in an active volcano where sulfur levels were 200 times greater than the safe allowable. No, the sulfur levels were 200 times greater than the safe allowable limit in Australia and the UK. Um, like the, yeah, like the coins I put, you know, the coins in my pocket went black, silver coins in my pocket went black after three days. Like, so, and those guys weren't wearing masks. None of us were. And, um, but then I had four of them tested down at the hospital and the, the radiographer told me afterwards, he said, these guys have hyper developed lung capacity. So, you know, like it's, mm, that's a good, is that's a good thing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. But that came from the altitude they were working at and the fact they were carrying these extreme loads in and out of, out of the volcano. So therefore they does that, doesn't mean their lungs are all right though, does it? They still could be stuffed. Um, I don't know. You'd have to chat to a doctor about that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> they were, yeah, like they had excess lung capacity, and it actually wasn't showing any signs of fibrosis either. So oh, I would say that they were, then. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of what they grow grew up with, you know. Their lungs got got used to it. So, um, have you ever gone anywhere and? you know, you're like about to enter the area or whatever and said, nah, fuck that. 
I'm not doing it because the risk is just too high for that photo or whatever. Yeah, I have. Um, I've done that in a large-scale mine as well. Um, uh, yeah, I have. I feel that I've got a, a pretty well-developed sense of uh, when something's not right, that doesn't mean everything's right. Like, I mean, I was nearly killed in a large-scale mine in Ghana about uh, probably 12 years ago, and it was an old-timer that saved me, actually, um, as well as himself. Um, but, yeah, No, like no, 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 you can't say that and then just carry on. What happened? Sorry. <laughs> Relive your near-death. I was photographing an underground mine, and we worded up the bogger operator and the trucks where I were where I was standing and told him not to come into that space so I set up the tripod and focused on you know the bogger and the truck loading or what it was and next thing I, f I was found myself being slammed into the um, sidewall of this underground mine and then uh, Vince ended up there as well and what happened was the um, bogger operator had forgotten and uh. his, bogger buck, his bogger bucket pulled up right where my head had been. So it could have been a problem. Mm. You know, so that's why you've got to have your head on a swivel and be sort of switched on all the time. Mm. I was nearly killed in an in a, in a artisanal mine in Pakistan as well when um, these people didn't warn of the blast properly. Well, we didn't even know the blast was going on. This bit of fly rock went past my head. About a metre in front of my head at 200 k's an hour would have killed me for sure. I was the one leading the. I was in front and there's a couple others behind me and uh, they still talk about that to this day. Mm. So fucking hell, mate. And you, you, you keep doing it. <laughs> so what are the times yeah. where you said no? What, like, what was the line that was going to be crossed where you chose not to do it? Mm, good question. Um, let me think. I'm just racking. I'm just running through my brain. Um, in Pakistan, I I, I pushed through it um, because I was working at high, you know, nearly five thousand meters, and I had to walk along a ledge of about were two hundred. There was a two hundred meter vertical drop to my left, and then there was a. I was walking along about a one foot wide ledge and I had to walk around this ledge of about a foot wide with a turnometer drop below and I, I said to my fixer I said Safdar can you bloody rope us here and he just short rope me which is basically means he holds onto the rope so if you fall he's going to hopefully try and pull you up um, same deal on I think in Pakistan as well I think another thing that happened was um, the first mine that I photographed in Pakistan was at about 4,100 metres and I just spent a few months learning how to rope before I went over there so I could rope on the side of some of the world's largest cliffs and the guy said I'll oh, come up there's a thing up the side and but you had to swing you know and this cliff was like 500 meters like big cliff and I had to get 70 meters up this cliff and they wanted me to swing on a rope to get from one thing to the other I said no I'm going up on rope so uh, I'm not answering your question very well no but, you're right um, it's still good I mean, even, even in Cerro Rico, there were things that I wouldn't do because it just felt not right. I mean, I saved my, um, my guide from potentially something pretty serious because someone hadn't rigged up ladders right. And next thing, they're climbing down this ladderway. And what, what had happened, someone had put a ladder on top of a plank, which was in a further... So the ladder was 10 metres and then the plank was just a normal plank. 
and there was a 10 meter drop below the plank and they put this ladder on top, straddling this plank. Next thing, he's swinging out and I grabbed him to pull him back and um, otherwise he could have fallen 20 metres, you know, like mm. stuff like that. So Neck minute. Um, yeah. Um, so, th oh. look, those, these things happen happen in your travels and you've just got to have your, have your eyes and ears about you and, um, you know, like I feel that I'm here to do, I feel that I'm on this planet for a reason and to do a, a, a project that I feel is really meaningful and... I, I, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but I feel that I'm going to get there. Um, but that don't take anything for granted along the way, if that makes sense. It does. Um, so along the way, have you had family? Like, have you got kids and a missus? And, like, you got people that are like, oh, my God, is he coming out of the hole? <laughs> Yeah, I get all of that all the time where I go. Um, but, yeah, no, short answer is no, just paddling solo. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean you don't exclude people coming into your life, but I don't chase it either. And if someone's meant to be in my life, they will be. And um, But I've got, this, I've got this project to do, and that project is it um, means that I have to make sacrifices that, uh, you know, aren't, means you don't necessarily lead a normal life and... I'm okay with that. Um, I just, I'm here to achieve impact, not stuff for self, if that makes sense. I don't mm. mean to sound like a bloody, I don't mean like to sound like <laughs> I'm holier than thou. It's not, not that at all. It's about um, what I'm doing feels deeply important and I want to make an impact in this world. And it sounds like you already are and you have for a lot of people. Um, what is the next, like what is the stage you're at with the project? And what are the next steps? Yeah, I'm 75% of the way through. I've got four locations left to shoot. They get progressively harder. So um, a friend of mine who was ex-military described it as, um, he said to me that what you're trying to do is the equivalent of trying to summit Mount Everest twice without supplemental oxygen <laughs> um, solo. Um, and um, so... Each location I go to just gets progressively more difficult. Um, and that's why I don't assume anything. I don't assume that I'm going to come out alive. I don't assume that I'm not. I try to plan for as much as I can and prepare for as much as I can. I mean, there's things I, I can't say here on the podcast because if the wrong people find out, that could be used against me down the track. And um, But it's, yeah, I just, I want to, I want to have an impact. I want to make a difference and... Oh, I just hope it doesn't go to shit along the way, you know, where I sort of end up in some dark hole with, you know, three by two sort of cell for a long period of time. So, um, but that's, you know, it's what you do. Well, it's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, oh, how do I say, like, fuck that, let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, like that's not. Let's not put that out to the universe. <laughs> no. Um, no. I thought you were going to say, like, buried in a crazy mountain or fall down a hole, not, not stuck in a jail cell. Is that kind of what you meant? The places I work in are not always easy. Mm. Um, they're far from easy. They're not. It's not just about safety. It's about stuff that wraps around them. It's the locations, the countries you're working in. Yeah. Um, so you just have to you have to prepare for 
um, you know, there's multiple things that could happen that are outside the actual mining environment you're working in. And um, do I like that aspect? Absolutely not. Um, I don't, but um, it's just part of the journey. And I think I'm that far in that this is not about me anyway. So this is what I feel I sh my life is telling me I need to be doing. So I keep putting one foot forward in front of the other and um, you deal with what comes um, you deal with what comes along the journey if that makes sense mm, it totally does and I can see how it would be hard to just stop because would you feel no. like you're kind of giving up on 40 million yeah, people I mean, <laughs> I've got to pull this off mm. um, you know my friend, my friend the same friend I was telling you about a minute ago um, he ran selection in one of the the elite military units in this country for, for a long time. And he told me, you know, when people do selection in that unit, um, when they start, they don't know how long the selection course is going to run for. It could be 20 days, could be 25 days, could be 28 days. And um, he told he's told me numerous stories about people who got within five minutes at the end, not realising they are five minutes from the end and they've pulled out. And I don't, I don't want to be five minutes from the end and pull out because you never know when you're five minutes from the end. You'd say you, you've just got to assume you're five minutes from the end and that it, um, it could be a lot closer than what you realise. And that all the work that you've done in all these years leading up to it is what is making that dent in the universe and you're making that difference and changes happening. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, you sort of learn in this caper, I've learned anyway, is that nothing's important. I know that sounds um, mm. hard for people to get, get their head around, but mm. I've, I've photographed some of the oldest, I've photographed the earliest known evidence of life on this planet, which is out of Marble Barb, 3.5 billion, 3.49 billion years old. So when you... When you think about the beginning of life, when you think that life on Earth began, let's say, that time ago on this planet, and you put that in the context of a, a one-hour documentary, human beings came along in the last um, half second of that one-hour documentary. So we're nothing. So when you realise that we're ultimately nothing as human beings, all you can do is what feels important. And so this project feels important, it feels deeply important, so you keep going and, um, and that's what I'm about. Oh, my God, I love that. I love that analogy and it's like we're a, a dot. <laughs> so make, yeah. make good use of your dot, of your time. Make it count. Yeah, make it count. Make it count. Yeah. Um, one of the questions that I ask, usually at the end, but I feel compelled to ask now, is... Um, about what is your special place when life turns to shit? How do you, Hugh, personally handle tough times? What is, what is it that you do to get through? Keep going. So there's there's two 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 limbs to that. So, I mean, I'm I'm having one of those challenging times at the moment, if I'm honest, because I'm working on this fucking project and. It's the hardest thing I've ever tackled in my life. Now, I mean, the photography, the book, that'll take care of itself. But um, wanting to achieve impact is what I'm really about with it. And so uh, crunching through the, you know, I, I hate to say it, but the business side of this project is just phenomenally difficult because no one's done what I'm doing here before. No one's ever done this. Um, 
the second thing, the second element to it is um, the places that I go to when things get tough or de default to a, where I am now, the Kimberley region and the Pilbara region. Um, because they're my home, they feel like home, I feel comfortable in those regions, um, all of that sort of stuff. But even within there, now, you know, what that looks like, it might look like um, uh, I just go out bush and take a few photos or whatever else. Or it could be I go and do my survival stuff and the survival stuff is the survival stuff is is really tough but I might get a helicopter and drop into a place and then walk down a river solo for 11 days or 10 days in the wet season up in the Kimberley or in December in the build-up. Um, and I don't take any food, don't take any water, and, and that's my way of, you know, the, the harshness of that almost sort of um, makes the, you know, all the other stuff go away just because you've got to focus on staying alive and, and doing all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, I love the, I love the physicality of these places and the, heart and, the, and the harshness of them and the, um, you know, these places aren't harsh, but they're unforgiving if you make mistakes, to, to quote a mate of mine. So I kind of enjoy that aspect of it as well. Wow. Um, you know, I like to meditate and look at a sunset and go outside and look at the stars. You like to be dropped from a helicopter on a, on a remote creek bed and walk for 11 kilometres on your own. <laughs> With nothing. <laughs> um, yeah. The life that you live is is just so different to so many people. And um, I honour and respect everything that you're doing. And you are definitely making change. And like you say, you could be five minutes from that big impact that you're really chasing with this project. Yeah, you you just never you never know and that's the reality you don't know so you got to it's like martial arts you just got to keep yourself in the fight mm. and uh even even when you just feel that you're getting smashed and um you just got to keep yourself in the fight and um and 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 you, you you know you go through those phases which are really tough and then you know it's like i did a i did a martial arts thing last year an instructor thing and uh Man, we were getting smashed, and you go through this stage of it's just brutal, and you want to pull out, and you, you know, because you got all this time to go, and then you, then you come through that, and then you, just make sure you keep getting up, and then the third phase is just you get delusional, you know, like it's mm. just like, and that's that's what it is. You just got to keep yourself in the fight, and you got to keep getting up, and you got to never give up. That's just what it's about. And no matter what your passion is, it's they're probably not all as extreme as yours. Um, but for each person listening, whatever your passion is, whatever you feel driven to do, keep at it and keep helping, especially if it's helping others. I think, you know, we all need to reach out and um, even if it's just as small as consciously smiling at people each day, you could change that person's life because someone smiled yeah. at you. you. You just don't know. Um so powerful. I feel like that's a good place to leave this episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to call this episode complete for you? 
Um, not really, no. I think I think we've pretty much covered it. Um, yeah, like if there's people out there, just just encourage if they, you know, life's about impact and um, making every day count. And um, you know, maybe one of the things that um, I hope can share with people in yeah, out of today is that you know everyone's having a crack in their own different way, and and just make every minute count and. We can all we can all change the world. All every single one of us can change the world. It just takes one person to to take that first step and to um, t- to back themselves in, even when yeah things get hard. So yeah, mm, awesome, Hugh. Thank you so much. And uh, where is the best place for people to get in touch with you? Where can they see all your photos, buy your books, all the things? Best things they can do is um, I think you've including the links below here. But yes. um, if you want to su- if you want to support the project, then uh, there's a link as to how you can support the work that I'm doing, or even you might know that people that might want to sort of support the work that I'm doing. Um, otherwise, you can I'm pretty big on LinkedIn, Facebook, um, and I have a website as well. So we'll include those links at the the base of this podcast. Yep. In the show notes, madmumsy.com forward slash beers eighty three. Or if you are listening. Most of the apps now, you can see the show notes while you're listening and click and be looking at shit while you're listening to us. I should say that at the start, shouldn't I? (laughs) Not after you've been listening for three hours (laughs) already. Yeah, no, this is is the longest interview I've ever done, Mumsy. It was funny when um, I had one lady say, no, I've only got 45 minutes. I said, oh, okay, we spoke for three hours. (laughs) And wow. we and we became really good friends. Yeah, um, it's kind of what I do to people. Yeah, <laughs> it's, awesome. This is my passion. Yeah, no, you've got a you've got a very good way about you, and um, it's it's really exciting and and well deserved that you're doing so well. So um, my sincere and um, congratulations and kudos for what you're doing. So yeah. Oh, hang on. I just hit my microphone as I'm going to do the she, namaste. I just gonna Thank describe, you. I'm just going to describe what happened. I thought she was going to clap her hands and she clapped one either side of the microphone. So uh, oh, that's a beer. No. That's, a, that's, a, that's a carton. That's almost. a bloody carton. That's, we better drink it right now. <laughs> it's time to say goodbye now. We could chat all day and I have been known to and this is one of those episodes where I think I did. All the links we discussed in this episode are at madmumsy.com forward slash beers 83 And, of course, please share with your mates. Until next time, stay safe, be real, be special, and have fun. For we only live once. (laughs) And after that episode, we certainly know that. (laughs) Cheers, crew. Uh, Cheers, crew. Cheers. Cheers, Hugh. Thanks for coming on the podcast. (laughs) 